Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) That is my co-host. His name is... William Bibiani. My voice is my passport. Verify me. You're verified. Uh, uh, everyone calls me Bibs, by the way. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film <laughs> critic. I write for whoever will have me from time to time. Uh, my voice is my passport. Validate. Ver- verify me. Verify me. Yeah. I, uh, I, I often I worked at a movie theater once. People parked in parking structures. They often approached me with parking tickets. Now, we didn't offer validation, but most people didn't know that. So they approached me with a ticket... <laughs> Of course, so we all had all of our snarky jokes at the ready. So they yeah. would approach the, the box office with their parking ticket. They'd lay it down and they would say, could you validate me? And I would like touch the ticket, very tenderly say, you're a good person. Yeah, I've done and that joke before when, yeah, I, when I, I worked reception. Yeah, yeah well, when, you're, when you're 17, that's the funniest thing in the world. I want, I, uh, if I, someone had told me, me that joke, mm. I would think it's the best thing ever. Yeah. I would say to myself, you, person behind the desk, mm. you're going places. You've got a great wit, you've got a charming personality, and I think you're going to be president. What I found is that when I actually did that joke, hmm. the reactions were decidedly more mixed. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd get a lot of a lot of snarls and a lot of A lot of, of people just want to get back to their damn car, I've discovered. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, when we revealed that we didn't offer validation, they'd get even angrier and everything would just go down the toilet. You'd be a, a cantankerous teenage clerk. That they would go home and write angry Yelp reviews about if Yelp had existed at the time. Mm. Uh, this is a film review podcast, however, and we're going to review some movies this week. Uh, they're, the new releases just keep on rolling forward, and we're here to review them all. We even have one of the films that was going to be released in theaters and had to be uh, rescheduled for streaming. Technically two of them. You know two what? You're films. right. Two yeah. films that were going to be theatrical. We're going to be reviewing uh, on this week's show uh, the animated kids film Scoob. With an exclamation point. Yeah, so you gotta say it like that. Scoob! Scoob! Uh, which is not only a CG animated uh, adaptation of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon Scooby-Doo, but it was intended to jumpstart a Hanna-Barbera franchise in which more than one Hanna-Barbera character could have their own movie and maybe they'd interact. Now, this has been going on for years. Those right. characters that interact all the time. Yeah. But we'll uh, get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. Also, we're reviewing this week uh, the new film Capone! Which doesn't have an exclamation point, but I like to add one. Its original Uh, title was Fonzo. Which is a better title, if you ask me. Uh, Capone is a biopic of Al Capone, and specifically in his declining years. uh, He's played by Tom Hardy and directed by Josh Trank, who did Fantastic, the bad version of Fantastic Four. And I'm saying that having seen the Roger Corman version. There are four film versions of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And at, at best, they're okay. The yeah. varying degrees of bad, yeah. and the Josh Trank one is easily the worst. We're also talking about a new film called Mother's Little Helper, which Helper, I, Helpers, plural. Mother's Little Helpers, plural, mm. which I am unfamiliar with, as I did not see it. I did, however, so I'll be talking about that movie. We will also be in our Cancel Too Soon, Critically Acclaimed. Damn it, Cancel we've too got mail, our, what? Cancel Too Soon is our, our TV podcast. This uh, is Critically Acclaimed, our we film have review podcast. like a dozen podcasts. It's hard to keep track sometimes. Mm. On the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where in addition to uh, reviewing new movies, we're also catching up on movies that we should have got around to by now, uh, we're talking about the family film Ants, which is actually historically significant in a couple of different ways. We'll be talking about that at the end of the show. Before we get to any of that, we have to talk about, once again, 
a really rough week for the industry on a wide variety of levels. We lost some filmmakers and performers this see- this week. Mm. That uh, well, it sucks. Can we just say that? Can we it, just say it it's sucks. really fucking it bad? Yeah. Uh, let's start by talking with most recently. Uh, I think most recently, mm. whatever. It's all this week. Uh, Fred Willard passed away. Fred Willard is uh, maybe one of the funniest guys ever. Just a damn funny uh, and, actor. And here's the thing. He he wasn't one of those guys who underplayed comedy. He was an outright clown. He could be, yeah. He played really kind of clownish characters. Um, you probably recognize him from a lot of Christopher Guest movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Best in Show, yeah. Waiting for Guffman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what was the A Mighty Wind, a mighty, yeah, and all of those. He, uh, you probably also know him from Anchorman. He was uh, Anchorman's boss. Mm. Yeah, he's funny in that movie. Yeah. He's, but he always played these very broad buffoonish characters. Well, typically. That was typically. sort of his strength, was playing these broad buffoonish characters. Uh, Best in Show is maybe his most exemplary performance, just sort of the one that uh, was the best example of what he did. Uh, in Best in Show, he played uh, the celebrity guest judge mm. or guest announcer on the televised dog show. He didn't know a lot about dogs. So whenever something would happen in the dog show, he didn't understand it and make some completely inappropriate comment yeah. about uh, what was going on. And, you know, he would say things like, oh, gosh, what a wonderful dog. And to think in some countries these dogs are eaten. You know, it's just <laughs> the most horrible and sensitive stuff. But you could you kind of forgave him for it just because he was such a clueless mook and because he was so funny. Yeah, um, he, he told he was really ready with a dad joke at any great moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one of the things I think is interesting about Fred Willard is uh, he is, to date, the only human actor to show up in a Pixar movie. This is true. Yeah, it's every like, other Pixar like, movie, completely animated. Mm-hmm. But in Wally, we find there's one human character, just a person who appears on an old... Well, okay, technically the cast of Hello, Dolly. Actually, I gotta backtrack that. Because okay, when yeah. Wally watches an old video, he's watching Hello, Dolly. I think it's Hello, Dolly. So and, te- technically, Wally takes place in the real world. Yeah, and in the and future... those are supposed to be live-action characters. Yeah, and they've, they've mutated in the years past, but when we see a, a human in the past who was an original character for the film, it's Fred Willard, and he's basically talking about how we fucked over the entire Earth. Let's all just go. Let's just go. We'll leave some robots behind, and maybe they'll fix it. I don't know. I suck. And um, it's a very bitter movie in a lot of ways, isn't mm-hmm. it? Oh, Yeah. 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 I, love I, that I like movie. the I like the bitterness. It's the slapstick I don't like. Oh no, I I think that movie's bright. I don't know. What right. I don't know everyone's goddamn problem is. I think it's great. <laughs> I know everyone's talking about like, oh, Wally, it's not a good film once it gets onto the axiom. Yeah, it is. It's great. You shut up. Everyone's mean. No, it's good. Shh. It's better than the first half. It's front, okay, it's, okay, it's okay, front loaded. You know what? You know what? Uh, it's all great. It's, I'm gonna I'm just gonna right. stop everyone right there. You're gonna have to live with that. Every once in a while, you would see Fred Willard in a non comedy role, and it mm-hmm. was weird. Did you ever see Salem's Lot, the Toby Hooper version? Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's, he, it's been a second, but I've seen it. He he just plays like a guy who's like cheating on someone. Like someone's wife is cheating on him with Fred Willard. <laughs> okay, that's it. He's just that guy. Like he, it's not funny. You keep expecting him to be funny. It's not really. He, he plays the other man. <laughs> just, just some dude. Yeah. I don't know. But he was, he was good at playing some dude. If mm. I didn't know Fred Willard as being the funny guy, it wouldn't uh, have been yeah. so distracting. And he just kept on rolling forward. He was in his 80s when he passed. And mm-hmm. he was doing funny roles right up to the end. Uh, someone posted a clip of him uh, on a... I even forgot what show it was. A sketch comedy show he was on. Where he was hired to be the uh, church organist yeah. at someone's funeral. 
But he, we see a shot of him, and he's wearing like a striped shirt uh, with the sleeves rolled up, some suspenders, and he's got this big, comically large mustache, and he's sitting in front of the organ that he's clearly brought himself. Mm-hmm. And they said, and now we're going to have some some music. And it turns out it's like the kind of organ you would play at a carousel. Or like a Spike Jones it's, yeah, concert. It's like, like, a, it's really it's like a calliope, so it's got like bells and crashes and things that he hits and like squeak horns. And he just sort of plays it. He breaks a plate on the ground as part of the show. Yeah. And he turns around and smiles and just says, my condolences. <laughs> I've seen, I watched that clip. I don't know what that's from either. I've watched that clip a dozen times and someone put it on Twitter. Yeah. That's a hilarious gag. Mm. Uh, I interviewed Fred Willard once. I don't have a great story about it. He was just very nice. So uh, Fred Willard is a comedy genius. He will very, 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 very much be missed. Yeah. Um, we've also lost another comedy genius this week, Jerry Stiller. Uh, Jerry Stiller, he's not really within our purview because he was more of a TV guy. But yeah, you look not, at his career, it's mostly television. Mostly television. Yeah. I think um, most people our age got to know him through Seinfeld, yep. where he played uh, George Costanza's father, the guy who came up with Festivus, yeah. and was really kind of this overbearing character and really explained why the George character was so uh, timid. I mostly most knew him from the almost completely forgotten John Cusack comedy Hot Pursuit. I haven't seen Hot Pursuit. Hot Pursuit. It's a good premise. Uh, John Cusack is in college uh, with his girlfriend and for like spring break or some holiday. Um, He was supposed to go on like a tropical vacation Hmm. with his girlfriend and he had to stay at school and do some extra credit or something in order to keep his degree. I forget what the base premise was, but she went on vacation without him. Yeah. And through a just a last minute machination... He is able to go, but he's got to chase her down. He's a day behind her. So it's just him trying to find his girlfriend on like one, you know, Caribbean island after another. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then his plane gets hijacked and they're going to take it to Cuba and all kinds of horrible stuff happen. And Jerry Stiller and I think Ben Stiller are all uh, are all planning to um, like kidnap and rob the girlfriend's rich family so it's all it's all ridiculous um yeah, I, I remember from i remember him from hairspray mm-hmm. now, i didn't see hairspray until the 90s but uh, it was kind of a kind of delight to see him he was one of those actors who would crop up and you knew you were gonna get a good funny scene just because mm-hmm. he was such a, a strong character actor uh he he played the jerry stiller type he was one of those yeah uh where he, he was such a unique voice in comedy that uh People were trying to replicate what he did. Yeah, uh, he was part of a comedy duo with his wife until she passed uh, in the the mid twenty tens. And uh, the elephant in the room, of course, mm-hmm. is that he is also Ben Stiller's father. Ben, ben Stiller is also yeah. kind of famous. Um, and yeah, listen again. He's more of a TV guy. We don't we we know television, but it's not our focus. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other TV podcasts that are doing really great retrospectives of Jerry Stiller's work. Uh, suffice it to say, we were fans. And he will definitely be missed. The person who passed away this week, however, who we are completely at a loss for, and it's really sad, is uh, uh, Lynn Shelton. She's a film director. She was known for uh, uh, some indie films, uh, like mm-hmm. Laggies. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Laggies hum- and Hump Day were Hump the big Day two were like the I two know. big ones. She was also yeah. in a film. Uh, she also directed a film called Your Sister's Sister with Emily mm-hmm. Blunt. She directed uh, quite a few episodes of Glow, and I'm just going to say it right now: if you haven't seen Glow, Glow is brilliant. Mm. Glow, if you if you know if you miss the zeitgeist on Glow and you never got around to it, 
Glow is a great show to binge right now. It's about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. It's about the creation of a female wrestling league mm. in the 1980s comprised of people who were having trouble getting work in other industries. Mm. And it's a really, really, really wonderful cast, really wonderful writing, wonderful direction. Uh, I was a huge, I, I still okay. am a huge fan. Uh, but she works a lot in television, but she's she's better known for a lot of her films. And the the damn tragedy beyond, obviously the fact that she passed away and people were huge fans is, through sheer coincidence, Whitney and I never saw any of her films. Yeah, it just never this, came up, this, and this we was, really screwed uh, up. I feel terrible about th- it. Her movies did come and go; like yeah. they passed through my attention, but I just never got around to them. I was at a film I festival feel, where they were showing laggies, and I had to see something else for an assignment, and I just was, never uh, got back around to it. I was working and... at the New Art uh, in 2009 when her movie Hump Day came out, and I just never saw Hump Day. Yeah. Uh, so we want to say she, this uh, right now. We want to say this right now. Hmm. If anyone uh, uh, wants to write in about Lynn Shelton and her work and what it meant to you, we would love to hear from you uh, on our podcast we've got mail uh, you write us in letters at critically acclaimed.net she deserves someone to really uh, speak about her career uh, on this channel well, and just we are not experts in her work so uh, we would love to hear from you if you have anything uh, you'd like to say about the works or films of Lynn Shelton so please write in and uh, we'll put make sure you put Lynn Shelton in the headline and we'll try to read it as soon as we can yeah yeah T- tell us about uh how good she is, her signature style, what she means to you, because yeah. uh, this is something we need to catch up on, and, yeah. and we both feel terrible. Yeah, usually usually if one of us is unfamiliar with someone's work, the other one is, but mm. sometimes it just happens, and, work out we just, and we feel especially guilty about it, so um, we'll, we'll do our best to not have this happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we uh, too many people are passing away right now, and it's mm. it's hard to keep up, and we'll probably have to do uh, more eulogies next week, but um, again, all these people will be missed, and uh, and and we'll, we, I, I owe it to Lynn Shelton. I will definitely seek out more of her work. Yeah, I'll have seen sure. some of her TV stuff. So, um, moving on. Uh, this was kind of a crappy week for movies. <laughs> I'm going to say this right off the bat. Well, I, There's going to be a lot of um, a lot of cusses, maybe? Maybe some bad uh, words that will be no. lobbed at the various releases. I'm pretty sure the big release of the week is Scoob. I'm sorry, Scoob! Scoob! Now, I, I I did see one of my favorite films of the year this week, but it's not being released on streaming until uh, next week. So we're not going to talk about it this well, week. Well, uh, okay, if, if, you're at a, if you're in a position to see it at one of the drive-in theaters that's yeah. showing it... When you just give a title and just say you highly recommend it. Uh, see The Vast of Night. Uh, okay. That's going to be available on Amazon uh, in the coming weeks, but it's currently playing in certain drive-in theaters. I recommend you go see The Vast of Night and okay. uh, just give it the attention it deserves uh, if you can. We will cover it in there, more detail when more people are able to see there it. There are but, a yeah. few drive-in theaters that are currently playing it, uh, but yeah, it's it also not gives really me an opportunity available. to see it as well, so we also, can have a real like, conversation. Like you to be able to see it as well. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I did also see Scoob. Scoob. Scoob is uh, the latest film in the 50-year-long franchise that is that began with Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? from Hanna-Barbera back in 1960-whatever it was. 19, and, uh, uh, Scooby-Doo uh, was a kid's show about a bunch of teenagers who solved mysteries, and all of the mysteries seemed to be supernatural, but then it turned out they were actually completely... Was- banal and it was all a real estate scam or insurance scam or always, something always somebody in a costume 
when I was growing up and Scooby-Doo was on the air, that was the version of Scooby-Doo that was out. Mm. That was the version that we had. There were a couple of movies in which like Shaggy became a werewolf, but the well, that was until later. But it, yeah. was, it was the eighties, but like it, it, initial, and that was when I was born. Mm. But the initial wave and the initial reruns of Scooby-Doo, and I think even a pup named Scooby-Doo had this as well. It was always secular. <laughs> there was yeah, the, the supernatural never came into play. It was actually I found it actually weirdly reassuring that the only thing magical in this world is that dogs talk. Yeah, Everything that, that part was never never questioned. Never questioned, never addressed. Dogs talk, fine. But ghosts, goblins, demons, Frankenstein monsters, robots, all of that stuff was fake. And that was actually interesting that there was a kids show, especially from Hanna-Barbera, which, as we've discussed at length on Cancel Too Soon, they had a couple of highlights, but mostly they made crap. Yeah, Hanna-Barbera uh, came, out of the, came out with... Um I mean, the Flintstones was their big hit. Oh, huge. Uh, and Which was the Honeymooners, but they were cavemen. Honey, animated cavemen Honeymooners. Uh-huh. And F- then of fun course, concept. Then, uh, of course, there was the Jetsons, which was the Honeymooners, but they were in the future. I preferred the Jetsons, just because I preferred sci-fi over cavemen. Uh, I it probably preferred the, the, the Jetsons show. slightly, but yeah, yeah it's, they're, they're the same uh, show. Until Orbity showed up, and then... <sighs> then f- Forget it. Uh, oh, every single one of those that lasted long enough introduced some weird fantasy character that ruined everything. Yeah. Flintstones, it was the Great Kazoo. Uh, Jetsons, it was Orbity. Orbity didn't come along until they revived the show in the 80s, though. Oh, really? Was uh, it that late? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have sworn. All right. Yeah, or- Orbity was like a, a late addition. And uh, Scooby-Doo, of course, had Scrappy-Doo, uh, one of the single most obnoxious animated characters ever created. Just uh, a terrible character. He existed yeah. he, he existed at that really annoying uh, intersection between uh, the show was fine but someone thought it would be even more popular if we introduced like a kid character, which all kids hate. Yeah, the kid character yeah. on these shows is never the character a kid likes. If you're the exception, I would love to hear from you because no, did, seriously, wh- did you earnestly love Scrappy Doo? Did anyone, when they watched the real Ghostbusters, say my favorite characters are the Junior Ghostbusters or 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 Manx? Remember the Manx, the cat. There's like no. a, there was like a cartoon alley cat that did battle with with Slimer. Oh no, that was that was uh, Slimer with, and the Real Ghostbusters. That was that was that was when the show like changed formats. Yeah, that was big. Then it became more cartoony. Mm. Like Slimer had his own show, right? Um, but yes, exactly. But exactly, like all of these terrible kid characters coming. But on top of that, he's also loud and annoying. Yeah, yeah. Just a loud, annoying psychic character. I always wanted to fight anybody. And on top of everything, and this really is the kiss of death for any time you introduce a new character into a pre-existing ensemble, he had nothing to add. No, except except his catchphrases. Yeah, like I, that's the thing. And this is something even Scoob talks about, is that every c- character in the mystery team, uh, Mystery Incorporated, is that what it is? Mystery Incorporated. Mystery Incorporated. Every, every character in Mystery Incorporated has something to contribute. Mystery Team is the, the Donald Glover movie. Thank you. <laughs> every, every character on Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, had something to contribute. Fred was the leader kind of arbitrarily but okay uh Daphne had had gumption had gumption yeah they had trouble with Daphne for a bit she didn't have a lot to contribute uh Velma was the smart one uh and Shaggy and Scooby were not just the comic relief but they were also very much the heart of the show um I have nothing against Daphne as a character but even when they did the live action Scooby-Doo movie in two thousand, uh, back in two thousand two or whenever that they was, they really yeah. struggled to figure out like what Daphne's identity was, and they decided two things. Uh, one is that she kind of didn't have one, so we had to make one up. And two, the thing that they made up was that she got kidnapped a lot. 
No, she didn't. No more than anyone else. Wasn't uh, an element of the show, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so the so the idea was in the live action movie with Sarah Michelle Gellar and Matthew Lillard and Freddie Prince Jr. is that she had learned kung fu. Uh, in the in- ensuing years, so she'd have something to do. That's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, Scooby. You mentioned Scooby Doo, the feature film from uh, from 2002, directed yeah. by Raja Gosnell uh, and it, written by James Gunn. Yeah, yeah. Or co-written by. I think he got rewritten. Um, I haven't seen those. I saw. I think I saw Scooby Doo two. I didn't uh, see Scooby Doo two. I did see Scooby Doo one. I actually read an early draft of Scooby Doo one, which was a little stronger. Okay, there's a little bit more bite to it. Uh, the Velma. They dealt more with Velma's sexuality. I mean, like not like in a way that was inappropriate for kids, but they dealt with the fact that Velma is seen as a, uh, she a queer read, icon. Yeah, she, she reads um, as queer, or at least fans read her as queer. They they had a different at the end of this first live action Scooby Doo movie. Spoiler alert! If you really are super invested in this, um, it's revealed that the main bad guy is Scrappy Doo. Mm. Uh, which is actually not the worst thing ever. Uh, that's not the worst twist they could have done. Mm. Uh, but in the original draft, I thought it was funnier because in the original draft, the bad guy was Don Knotts. <laughs> like Don Knotts had betrayed the mystery team. And oh, it was really funny. funny. The other thing that was weird about that movie is that in that movie, the, the, like, the original draft hammered this home really even harder, but the mystery team had gotten kind of mystery mystery incorporated had gotten kind of jaded mm. because every time they tried to investigate the supernatural, it wasn't real. Yeah. So they didn't believe in anything. So when there were actual monsters, they got like kind of super excited about it. <laughs> it was actually like a real thing. Right, um, I want to take a step back here and just sort of lay out something we haven't really codified yet. Scooby-Doo sucks. Um, <laughs> Scooby Doo was never good. It was not good based on a good idea. Uh-huh. It, it it is just as good as any number of really crappy mystery solving Hanna Barbera shows. From was the it time. the first mystery solving Hanna Barbera? Does it at least have that distinction? Maybe I'd have to look it because up. it clearly because... comes from the tradition of the Hardy Boys and Nancy mm. Drew, and that's yeah. fine. That's a good tradition to be part of. I have nothing against a show about teens solving mysteries and mm. disproving the supernatural. That's a good idea for a show. Yeah. Uh, Scooby-Doo was spectacularly poorly written, extremely formulaic. Badly animated. Badly animated, which was the norm for Hanna-Barbera, which was by design. That's how they were able to get so many shows out. But, and it's also, it's worth remembering, if you've forgotten, they really dominated the Saturday morning landscape for a really well, long be- time. Because, because they of, because of that animation, yeah. They, yeah. they they had what they called limited animation, which means... Uh, they designed characters from the ground up so that they could be expressive or they could talk without having to move a lot. Yeah. It was essentially like clutch cargo or they'd yeah. superimpose human mouths over. All, they, all uh, you need to do is animate a certain part of them. It really is a huge time saver. Yeah, so they, they were able to churn out all these shows. And mm-hmm. a lot of Gen Xers grew up watching these shows and fell in love with the shows as kids. But then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you watch uh, even movies uh, for, you know, from the 90s have scenes of Gen Xers discussing like the crappy cartoons they watched and trying to read mm-hmm. like deeper sociological meaning into them. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Uh, uh, in, in Donnie in, Darko when they're talking about the Smurfs. Yeah, uh, when um, they, they talk about the Smurfs in uh, Richard Linklater Slackers. Oh right? yeah, uh, what, what was it? It, it? This isn't quite the same thing, but my favorite one of those is uh, I think Timothy Oliphant has a speech about Family Circus and Go. Yeah, where yeah, he yeah, talks about how family it's sur- down there in the corner waiting to suck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, it's we a great gr- speech. <laughs> we grew up with some terrible popular culture. But what I think is actually the most interesting thing about Scooby-Doo is that there's a lot of people of my generation or older mm. who grew up with the original version of Scooby-Doo 
to whom Scooby-Doo is, in, like I said, a secular show. Mm. It is a show about people debunking the supernatural. And what I have come to terms with, and it took me a while to just accept this, mm. is that that is not the norm for Scooby-Doo anymore. And in fact, Scooby-Doo, since about the mid-80s onward, has mostly been about the supernatural being real. Yeah. That is not my experience with Scooby-Doo. I did not grow up with that Scooby-Doo. And I think well, it's really interesting that there is this other version of Scooby-Doo that is completely taken over, that kids just accept and embrace, that the version of Scooby-Doo that they like, monsters and vampires and everything are real, mm-hmm. that that's the norm now. Like, the version of Scooby-Doo that I like was actually comparatively brief. It's like if your favorite version of Batman is the first version of Batman from the 1940s who would snap people's necks and shoot guns. Yeah, that was Batman, but it was Batman for a very short amount of time. But it was the first Batman. It was. It's still it's still uh, fine. But like you can still yeah. love that. But like that's just not the most popular, most common, and indeed most celebrated mm. version. It's weird. Uh, Eddie Izzard, a stand-up comedian, has a really great bit about Scooby Doo because he he saw that um, Shaggy and Scooby mm-hmm. uh, were the only characters he could think of that were. Uh, cowardly characters that were also upbeat and you really sympathized with. Mm-hmm. And he was, he even like put it out to the audience. What, what else? What other, what other characters in literature are like that? Mm. Somebody mentioned Falstaff, a Shakespearean character. Yeah. Says, and it's that level of greatness, Shaggy and Scooby. And Falstaff is unique even in Shakespeare because yeah, he is a gluttonous, mm. lustful, cowardly, and we do love the hell out of him. Mm. Because he, they also understand that he's a bit of a tragic figure. And I think at best, Shaggy and Scooby are kind of tragic figures mm. in that they're arrested development. They never grow up. They yeah. never learn valuable lessons. They're very pleasant to be around. But what purpose do they serve? Mm. What do they do? And indeed, yeah, that is that is the setup for Scoob. School, yeah. So now we're up to 2020. And now we have another uh, film with Scooby-Doo in it. It's a theatrical release. It's uh, supposed to be a theatrical release. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fully CGI animated this time around. It's not live action with a CGI dog. Uh, a whole so, new cast, including yeah. uh, Matthew Lillard had been playing even in animation. Shaggy for many mm. years. They replaced everybody. Cl- clean slate. Mm. Sometimes that's more effective than others. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the new Shaggy. Was it Will Forte? Will Forte plays Will the Forte new Will Forte is Shaggy. the new Shaggy. He's okay. I actually think Matthew Lillard is better, mm. but I could get uh, used to it. They did, however, get Frank Welker to play Scooby. Which is great. Uh, which is great. Frank Welker played Fred on the original show uh, when uh, Don Mezick passed away. Who He played the voice of the original Scooby. Uh, Frank Welker took over uh, Scooby as well. Yeah. I think he played Fred and Scooby, uh, Casey Kasem, and then a couple other sound-alikes ended up playing Shaggy over the years. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad that they actually you know got Frank Welker back because he is a master at this sort of thing. He's been playing the character for so long. They probably only had him in the booth for like a day. Yeah, that's how fast he yeah, works. He just, he, just, he he just knows so, what he's doing. does it so well. And uh, if you if you'll notice, there was a, a clue where they had to go to an island and they called it Mesic Mountain. Oh, that's after cute. John Masek. That's uh, nice. Yeah. Um, I, I also appreciate that when they were in the even in the closing credits, they 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 respected Frank Welker enough to give him his own title card. Yeah, Frank Welker may not be because other people who are in the cast, you got Will Forte. You got Zac Efron as Fred. It's actually not that, that, that casting. That's, that's kind of dead on. Actually. Amanda Seyfried as Daphne. Also good casting. Fine, fine, yeah. Gina Rodriguez as Velma. She's actually mm-hmm. quite good. Uh, Jason Isaacs and, as Dick Dastardly, which we need to talk about that because that's weird. Uh, but that's good casting. Mm-hmm. We got Mark Wahlberg in this movie as well. We got Ken Jeong, Tracy Morgan. Mm-hmm. And 
Frank Welker is not as well known to most people, but he gets his own title card because the motherfucker is Scooby-Doo. <laughs> and let me tell you something. If nothing else, he's a good Scooby-Doo. He's Frank Scooby-Doo. Welker knows what he's doing. He knows mm. how to play Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, as a character, specifically Scooby-Doo, mm. is on point. Yeah. I'll yeah. Give him credit for that. Frank Welker's in his 70s. has been doing this for mm. since he was, I think, like 19 years old. He got into voice oh, acting. Bless that man. He's just been doing this his whole life. He is, he is w- one of the gods of the form. Yeah. Uh, I remember hearing interviews with people who have worked with him. And he, he, he was always hired to do, like, animal noises for other movies, too. Yeah, I think like he played Appa in uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Like, if you ever needed an animal noise, yeah, Frank Welker like, could do any like, animal. He'd just co- come into the booth and just, like, grunt and do an animal. Yeah. Somebody said, can, can you do a seagull? Oh, I can do a seagull. Can you do six seagulls? Yeah, I can do six seagulls. <laughs> like simultaneously. Like, uh-huh. So he, he's he's like right at that level. He he's really, really is, I think, one of the most underappreciated actors of his generation. Yeah, he, and uh, he's the best part of this movie. Yeah. Because yeah. this movie is shrill and obnoxious and bad. It's really quite terrible. Yeah. The, the, it we, starts off, I will say this, it starts off not terrible. I'm with it and not in love with it, but I'm with it in the prologue. Because I'm like, the, from the prologue, we might be able to get to somewhere interesting. Because it starts off... We, we, with, have, a, we have a pup named Scooby-Doo. Yeah, we start, off, <laughs> we start off when they're as kids. Mm. Uh, it starts off at Venice Beach for no particular reason. Uh, it's, it's trying to read as a stoner, I suppose. I but, yeah. guess, but they're little kids. Like, they yeah. shouldn't be stoners yet. Um, but, but he's listening to Ira Glass, who plays himself. <laughs> and that, that that's one part that got me a chuckle, is right. the Ira Glass so cameo. At this opening, uh, uh, Shaggy is at the beach. Everyone has friends except for Shaggy. He's very, very lonely. And he tries to put on some music on his phone. And it's all sad songs, sad songs, sad songs. <laughs> Screw it. I'm going to listen to a podcast from Ira Glass. Mm. And Ira Glass is having a podcast about why it's important mm. to make friends. This, this is American Life. Here's my new podcast. It's about funny. having friends. Kind of funny. Uh, he's lonely, and uh, there is a puppy, straight stray dog out on the stray beach, dog, who steals uh, uh, a big tubular thing of meat and is some, rolling down some, the street with it. Shawarma, yeah, thing. rolling down the the street with it, and they their paths cross, and they're instant friends. The joke at the beginning here, which I was act- I actually thought was genuinely funny. Okay. And it's the funniest joke in the movie, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. So it peaks real early. <laughs> it's uh, like the first five minutes of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A cop has been chasing Scooby mm. uh, down the beach, trying to get this meat back. And when and he says, okay, you're a stray dog, and I'm going to get you out of here. And Shaggy's just like, no, he's uh, my dog. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah? What's his first name? Scooby? What's his middle name? Dooby? <laughs> What's his last name? <laughs> and the cop says, all right, if a dog has a middle name, I can't prosecute him for any crimes. It's a weird law, but it's my responsibility to enforce it. And I was well, like, and the, that's well, actually kind of knowing and Scooby, weird and funny. Also, it it, uh, it, it expl- quote, explains uh, why Scooby snacks are a thing. Evidently, that was an already marketed, like, branded dog treat in sure. the universe of Scooby-Doo. It was so always kind of a co- after the cookie. You know what? That makes perfect sense. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't point, matter, but, but it makes perfect sense because uh, if you, if it's one of those things, if you start peeling away the layers, it's it's like that scene in The Simpsons where Mr. Burns like loses his job and like he tries to buy cereal and he doesn't know what he's doing and he sees Krusty no. buy Krusty-O's like, and he asks, me "Where are the Burns O's?" Exactly. <laughs> like, there. Why is there a snack named after Scooby? Scooby is a weird name. Scooby is named after Scooby Snacks. Again, it's not genius, but they, there's some thought. Someone thought about something and put it in a movie. Mm. All right. 
and they have this bonding and an opening montage where they just have a bonding and we're supposed to get really emotional about Shaggy and fucking Scooby-Doo and uh, which I refuse to do. <laughs> the film didn't make me you know, it's feel just, for Shaggy and Scooby. It's a boy but, uh, and his dog. For some people, emotionally, that's a headshot. I like guess we're just so, going to yeah. connect with it immediately because it's a little kid and, and their pet. Maybe it's because I have like a lifetime of associations of like sucky cartoons with Scooby-Doo that I have trouble <laughs> sympathizing with that. But maybe that's my own short. It's short a little coming. arbitrary, uh, but I'm with it. And then what happens is it's Halloween. It's Halloween. And that's where he runs into the other uh, the other three members of Mr. Incorporated. Mm-hmm. That's Fred, Daphne and Velma. They're. Dressed in their Halloween costumes, they go to the haunted house and they find that there's a guy dressed as a ghost there scaring people away. Because he's because using he's, he's the house hi- to hide, steal he's stuff. He's hiding stuff that he's stolen. Again, that whole prologue, mm. it's not genius, but it's fine. Like, it's it's okay mm. Scooby-Doo. I'm and not then, against it. And they have the opening montage with mm. the Scooby-Doo song. And they uh, recreate it in CGI. The only thing that they change is this weird bit... And it pays off in a really pathetic way where Fred has a crush on their van... Like it's Fred looking at the van and there's like a heart over him or whatever. Yeah. And then later on the van will get wrecked and Fred will try to avenge it to, by with like his life. Yeah. And I'm like, we didn't need any of that. That's really crap. That would have been funnier if we got to see Zac Efron because yeah. Zac Efron's hilarious. Zac Efron and, would be a great live action Fred. Yeah. Just yeah. a flat I, out I mean, great live action Fred. You'd have to age them up a bit. He's not like, he's not a teenager, but. You know. Well, whatever. I'd be fine with that. Okay. Yeah. Um, Zac Efron's 30 now. But whatever. Like, he's, he's fine. He's fine. You he's can have fine. a 30 year old Scooby gang. I don't give a crap. Sure. Why not? Um, anyway, so the actual plot is uh, the mystery, uh, Mystery Incorporated has been ever since that fateful day, they've been solving mysteries and they're ready to go corporate. Uh, but the they need an investor and their investor, for literally no reason, is Simon Cowell. Playing himself. And Simon Cowell just walks up to their booth at a diner, is mean to them, and then leaves the film. Why was it Simon Cowell? No, why? Why was it Simon Cowell? <laughs> Tell me, why was it oh, Simon Cowell? I know you can get Simon Cowell, but I'm sure you can get a lot of celebrities. Why did you pick Simon Cowell? Uh, it's Simon Cowell, and yeah, he's Simon Cowell. They, they animate him pretty well. I like the design of the animated Simon no, Cowell. I, it's I, not I, creepy or anything. He um, reads as Simon Cowell. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, I guess you know for for the tradition that Scooby Doo had of getting weird celebrity guests. And it's like and on, on this you, episode, it's Divine or whoever they had. When you it got was, a celebrity, it was never Divine. But when you way. got a celebrity guest in Scooby Doo, <laughs> they didn't just show up for a line and then leave. It was an episode in which mm. they teamed up with Don Nods, yeah. or they teamed up with Fat Albert, or they teamed up with the Batman, Har- the Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, yeah, it was about them. You actually made the most out of the cameo. This is just random. It's it's it feels pretty random, and what he says is, uh, "I I invest in your company, but Shaggy and Scooby, they got to go. They, they, don't, they don't contribute anything, anything to the team." And, yeah, and uh, Fred, Daphne, and Velma look at him and say, "Yeah, I guess you're right." Which is ridiculous for a couple of reasons. They do defend it by saying he's a, they're friends, we, they're part of the team, uh, but the obvious solution is mascot. <laughs> they're the face. Scooby of the company, is Scooby yeah. is a mascot, and Shaggy is beloved. They are the face of the company. They're mm. make it kid friendly. That's where the marketing comes from, you idiots. So I'm already already your movie is dead to me because you're clearly idiots. But when uh, when Shaggy and Scooby try to bowl their problems away, the bowling balls and pins turn into robot assassins and chase them down an alleyway, and uh, they're rescued by the Blue Falcon. 
Uh, okay, so no, this is not a surprise. This Blue Falcons in all of the ads. Blue, Cal- Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt were all, other Hanna Barbera characters. Mm-hmm. Blue I, Falcons played by Mark, Mark Wahlberg. Dino Mutt's played by Ken Jeong. Um, uh, I will say this. Uh-huh. I always liked Blue Falcon. Like Blue Did Falcon, you? Yeah. Like I, of, of all the Hanna Barbera cartoons that I watched, it was their superhero ones were some of the better ones. Like Blue mm. Falcon was pretty good. Uh, Mighty Man was my favorite because Mighty Man was fucking weird. They were all weird. Okay, but here's the thing. Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt. Blue Falcon is a Batman knockoff. Uh Dino Mutt is a robot dog. I can get behind all of that. And he was like a a bumbling sidekick. He was actually kind of a fool in the cartoons, and this one he's much more capable. Which is fine. Uh, The one that I loved was was Mighty Man, because Mighty Man, when he transformed into Mighty Man, he didn't just become, like, super strong. He also shrank to, to like, like, six inches tall. Okay. For no reason that I could understand, and his and his sidekick dog was the ugliest dog in the world. He wore a doghouse oh, over yeah, his yeah, head, yeah. and whenever he took off the doghouse, right. and people saw what he looked like, they were like frozen in place because he's the most hideous creature in the, in, in like creation. Mm. Where's that movie? <laughs> That's a weird movie. That well, sounds like a Charles Band movie. Yeah, the, the the weirdness of the early Hanna-Barbera cartoons were clearly the result of people smoking a lot of weed uh, <laughs> in the writers' rooms. And uh, unfortunately, that's been kind of lost. There were jokes about how you know Shaggy was a stoner, et cetera, et cetera, in mm-hmm. like, the 2002 movies. Um, I feel like this guy, ga- and w- then when they meet Blue Falcon, he's like really self-obsessed and he's actually not that capable. He's and it got, turns out uh, he's actually the son of the Blue Falcon, which is why and, he's a little bit more inexperienced and amateurish. And he's chasing after Dick Dastardly, who is also kind of an egotist. And I feel yeah. like this joke of taking old Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters and turning them, uh, like putting them in a new context and turning them into these vapid, callow, self-obsessed idiots is something that was milked dry by Cartoon Network in the late 90s. Here's the Starting ir- with stuff like Space Ghost Coast to Coast right, and Harvey Bird Birdman, Birdman yeah. C Lab. These, yeah. these shows were already turning these admittedly crappy Hanna-Barbera cartoons into these ironic, uh, near-surrealist, like, absurdist deconstructions of themselves. Here's the weird thing about Scoob. Mm. Um, they do that. That's not weird. What's weird is that they're very big on redeeming the characters who were kind of bumblers before. Well, so Dynamut gets very to be modern, re- a very modern sensibility. Dynamut gets to be very capable. Yeah. Dynamut is the experienced crime fighter who is annoyed that the person who's supposed to be in charge, Blue Falcon, is now inexperienced and all about his ego. Uh, we eventually, in a completely throwaway sequence, meet Captain Caveman, who's a total mm. badass. It's played by Tracy Morgan. And the other person who I took me a second to figure out what cartoon she was from, uh-huh. working with Blue Falcon and uh, Dino Mutt, is Dee Dee uh, Sykes. Yeah. From, who was also from Captain Caveman. Mm. But Captain Caveman took all the attention because he was Captain Caveman. He was the title character. But in, but, the, in this one, she's the, uh, a secondary yeah. uh, sidekick to the Blue Falcon. Right. And she's also the only capable one. Yeah, and she's actually she's like, like a an actual really, superhero. She's yeah. an actual cool action star, and she's played by Kiersey Clements. Um, so Shaggy and Sco- uh, Scooby, who are fans of the Blue Falcon, are now hanging out with their favorite superhero. And it turns out that Dick Dastardly... Uh, is trying to assemble like the three skulls like from the Phantom, but this time instead that of that like is the 1996 movie The Phantom, which is also about assembling three skulls mm-hmm. and stopping a charismatic bad guy from assembling three skulls. Uh, but Dick Dastardly wants to assemble these skulls to open the portal to hell. 
and unleash Cerberus. For reasons which are actually, when you find out the reason, it's one of the better parts of the movie. Mm, it's all right. When you find out uh, Dick Dastardly's actual like um, motivation, it actually isn't bad. Like I'll mm. give him credit. That's actually a good story yeah, idea. There's, there's not a lot in terms of humor. The plot is really oh, perfunctory. Mm-hmm. It does. It was, of course. I think there's like six credited screenwriters and story writers on this uh-huh. one. Uh, and it feels like it. It feels like one of the um, yet another animated film that was made by Assembly. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't reveal anything about Scooby Doo or introduce anything new to Scooby Doo that we haven't already seen ad infinitum mm-hmm. in previous iterations of this character. And even Hanna Barbera uh, characters meeting each other, they did that all the time. They did, yeah. Look at Wacky Races, for God's sake. That yeah. was all of them together, they would, and they're in a racing They would show, do so. special TV events where Yogi and Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound teamed up. This was common. Well, and, and like, what kids in 2020 are really going to get excited when they see a cameo from Johnny Quest's dad? Yeah. Or or, or McGilla Gorilla. Or Blue Falcon. Or, or Blue I get Falcon. that Shaggy is into him, but like... Frankenstein it's, Jr. or anything. Yeah. yeah. It's, if, if anything, they'd get excited about Space Ghost. Here's Space Ghost, maybe. Here's the thing which you gotta do if you want to reintroduce these things to kids. Hmm. Never take their interest for granted. You have to resell the idea yeah. from the ground up. You'll notice that like when hmm. they rebooted She-Ra, and it's a great show, hmm. uh, that they didn't just start off with, and everyone knows She-Ra, right? No. They did the work. They did like a four episode arc that introduced all the characters and the concept so that it all made sense. They didn't take your interest for granted. They mm. worked it from the ground up. If you want to make Blue Falcon cool, I guess this is kind of a backdoor pilot for Blue Falcon. Maybe that's not the ideal example because mm. they kind of sell you on Blue Falcon by the end. But like you can't just throw in Johnny Quest and like a gag at the end of this. You need to sell us on Johnny Quest. You mm. need to sell us on uh, McGilla Gorilla, if you're going to give him his own movie I, I or think something. I it was Great Babe, but one of those. Aren't they both Hanna-Barbera? They're both Hanna-Barbera. Oh, okay. but, yeah. but my point is this. You you need to do this from the ground up. You can't, like... it's it's This is like when the DC Extended Universe jumped into Justice League after no the, amount of time. Like, we didn't have a relationship to The Flash. I, I think there were or four the, feature films, but yeah, the, like... Mm-hmm. There was uh, uh, there was Superman, and then there was Batman and Superman, and then there was Suicide Squad, and, and there was Suicide Squad, and then and, but, and Wonder but, Woman. So but there, Suicide there, Squad yeah. only had Batman in it, so like mm. it wasn't like we developed a relationship with mm. the characters in Justice League no. yet. So we we need to know who these characters are if them meeting is going to excite us, mm. and even for people who know who the characters are like us, I don't know these versions. Yeah, this is a new thing. You actually do need to take the time. To do the work. And the problem is they're spending all this time to do all this work to introduce this shared Hanna-Barbera universe. You know what they don't do? Tell a good Scooby-Doo story. Shaggy and Scooby take center stage. I get that. That that does make sense. They're popular characters. But their whole story is, will their friendship last forever? Yes. You know who gets almost no screen time? Daphne, Velma, and Fred. They have a minor subplot. (laughs) That gets resolved very, very quickly, mm. and then they're nothing. They're vapor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our, our attachment to these characters is a little tenuous as is. Yeah. Um, at this point, maybe there are some kids who remember seeing the 2002 movie. Mm-hmm. And the 2002 movie, from what I understand, was actually like really kind of crass and ironic, it was, it was more. It was. It was originally going to be more crass and ironic, but there's some of that ended up in the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was sort of one of the last films that was riding on the coattails of sort of the the 
uh, postmodern scream wave where everything was becoming just like really self-aware and we got some good films out of that wave we got a lot of bad films out of that wave it's true for almost any wave Uh, and I feel like that Scooby-Doo movie Mm -hmm. I think it it nailed Scooby-Doo shut like we shouldn't have had any more but at the same time it kind of kicked the door open for this really dangerous new era when we could just sort of adapt anything mm-hmm. because at the even at the time i think people really understood scooby doo isn't worth this yeah. scooby doo is like just this healthy memory just because we can cgi of, a yeah. dog doesn't mean we should and, CGI and we, a dog. we we remember making a lot of jokes about haha's shaggy is uh, definitely a stoner we just don't see him smoking weed on camera cuz it's a cartoon and yeah. and that's kind of all we did is like well what if we what if what if we actually did it man what if we actually yeah. like cgi'd scooby and like actually cast actors in this wow that's a dumb idea let's do it and that was kind of that was kind of it we didn't we didn't need that movie no. we didn't need any more scooby doo we now i haven't seen any of the animated films that like went to straight to video since then where like they make like kiss or wwf i haven't seen those uh, but i have seen a few of the animated straight to video stuff and i think maybe a couple episodes of like they've had subsequent tv shows as so well may, maybe those were really really good maybe those were really popular uh, there are like, people kids who are really fond of those. i know those. people who are huge fans uh-huh. um who are even adults and just think that some of them are well written uh i don't know if i saw those shows i saw a few that were fine all right you know perfectly good kids shows i got nothing against it um, nothing that really captivated me. I'm sure someone out there is like, no, the 2012 series that lasted two seasons is the best thing ever. Yeah. That may be this case, but there's so much of it now, there's just a glut. Yeah. And it's hard to say, like, what is the defining Scooby-Doo? What I can say with some confidence is I don't think Scoob is it. No. Scoob feels like it was thrown together in order to set up a franchise. It doesn't feel like anyone making this movie and if they were i'm sorry it didn't come across but it doesn't feel like anyone making this movie had a story they really wanted to tell yeah no one like if i were making a scooby-doo story i would have a story I, there's actually i would love to do go back to the secular scooby-doo mm. and like treat it like a mystery you know like an agatha christie but with a cartoon thing like i would love to to go back to that and have like a point to mm. it that would be what i'd do i'm sure there are other people who would love to do actual supernatural monsters and have a point to it. Mm. This doesn't feel like it has a point. This doesn't feel like anyone was passionate mm. about it. Anyone was emotional about it. It feels per- really yeah, perfunctory no. and bad. Which, it's a bad movie. Which is kind of odd. Well, maybe not odd. But uh, the makers of this film, their names are Spike Brandt and Tony Cervone, uh, are like uh, veterans going back to the 90s. They started their career doing like Animaniacs and a lot of mm-hmm. uh, Warner Brothers stuff. They did all of those really horrendous Tom and Jerry meets popular property movies. Oh. So Tom and Jerry meets Wizard of Oz. Tom and Jerry meets uh, WWF. The Flintstones in WWF. They Mm. did uh, Scooby-Doo and Kiss. So they were the ones who did all of these movies. So it kind of makes... Tom and Jerry and Nutcracker. They're also going to be doing the animation for the new Space Jam film. Uh, So... The, these guys know what they're doing sure. uh, in terms of animation. They're they're pretty much veterans at this point. Oh, they're absolutely veterans. And uh, I, I didn't sense any kind of wit to again, this. Again, I, I I don't know what happened behind the scenes of this movie. Mm. Maybe it was a relatively smooth production, mm. although that number of screenwriters doesn't necessarily belie that. Mm. Um, this feels like the higher-ups at Warner Brothers had a plan. Mm. 
and whether or not they told a good story was secondary. Yeah. That's what it feels like. And I think that sucks. At least that's the impression that the movie gives across. And that's not an impression. I don't want a story, even a kid's story, to feel this cloyingly calculated. I want it to feel like it's fun, man. I want it to feel like there are characters that I like in situations that are entertaining. It's a pretty minimal ask, I think, from a kid's movie. I will say this. It's not like offensive or anything like if this is like you're you're hurting for new content to show your kids and um you know you want to buy or rent this Mm. you know you're not gonna mess your kids up for the future or anything like that it's just it's there's nothing to it it's insipid it's Mm. shallow and it's basically a big commercial and Uh, i'm i don't like it I don't like it either. All right, let's move on. <laughs> um, so you know how I was talking about how it didn't feel like there was a story someone really needed to tell mm. about Scoob? Scoob! Um, I'm not sure that you can say the same thing about the next one we're talking about, because it's Capone! Capone! Which is very, very much a, a, a passion project for writer, director, and editor Josh Trank. Uh Patton Oswalt had a bit where he was commenting on uh, the Passion of the Christ mm. and how Mel Gibson made the Passion of the Christ, but it was just about that period of his life when he was being beaten to death. And you know, it was about the Passion. Yeah. And uh, Patton Oswalt said, well, you know, sh- surely Jesus Christ did other more important things than just getting the snot beaten out of him for two hours. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, what w- what is the pitch of somebody who's trying to do the same approach to like the the life of Albert Einstein. Oh, I'm going to go in. We're going to tell the life of Albert Einstein. Oh, that's a great idea for a movie. We can cast it and he did all these important things in terms of mathematics and sciences. Oh, but hang on. I'm going to tell a story of Albert Einstein this one like afternoon when he had the runs real bad. <laughs> like he ate some bad shrimp or something. He was just stuck on the toilet this whole time and he was like sweating and straining and just stuck on the toilet and really, really sick. That's Capone. It is. This is not the life. It's called Capone. You, know, you think it's going to be the life story of Al Capone? It's not. This is the death the, story of the, Al Capone. The last few days of of Capone's life. Uh, uh, technically, years. Technically, uh, years. The last he had the year. declining so, years. Yeah. So yeah, he was. He was. Uh, if you know anything about Al Capone, he was a big uh, drug king or uh, uh, crime kingpin in Chicago. Uh, he was I'm taken about Elliot Ness and his Untouchables in the movie and the Untouchables. Uh, that's how he was taken down in the movie. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but he was played by Robert De Niro in real life. It's, and, a, uh, it's a great movie. It's really bad history, but yeah. Yeah, he was a uh, big bootlegging empire, mm-hmm. killed a lot of people, uh, and he's, he, he's um, it's been proven that he's killed at least thirty-one people. Yeah, which is a lot. Yeah. Uh, and he was taken down in a way that might seem anticlimactic, mm-hmm. but history has just gotten used to the idea uh, because he evaded his income taxes. He was making all that illegal money, and he didn't pay the government anything, and that's mm-hmm. how they got him. Irony. Uh, he went to prison for a while. He was let out after a while, and this film picks up after he's moved into his palatial estate. He's dying and half mad from syphilis. Yeah, and that's uh, why they let him out. Yeah. He was he was uh, uh, mentally incapacitated through syphilis. I believe, based on what little research I've done, that they found out like mentally he's about as uh, uh, on the ball as like a 12-year-old. 12 12 yeah, yeah and, like he's was not uh, in a good place. So we have Tom Hardy. He's got this uh, wonderful uh, makeup job where they try to like give him the nose and make him look like Al Capone. And uh, he is affecting a voice where it sounds like he's swallowing Nick Nolte. Uh, <laughs> 
How are you doing there, Fonzo? Are you Tom, what are you doing, Tom Hardy? Uh, I really admire Tom Hardy, but I have no idea what the hell he's doing in this movie. I think Tom Hardy is the next generation of Nicolas Cage. I yeah, think there are yeah. people who can rein him in and get like a normal performance out of him, and he will be great. But if you let him go... He'll, he will go, go insane, yeah. and he's and he's uh you know across you know, he'll he'll do like these big pop projects like Venom, yeah. Uh, but he'll also do these like little tiny indie projects where he really gets to stretch his acting muscles like Locke. Uh, this one, I think he was trying to stretch his acting muscles a little bit, but he's so deep in character mm. that I don't understand him at all. He didn't stretch and, his acting muscles, he pulled his acting he muscles. Pulled, yeah, he pulled his acting muscles, and uh, kind of like uh, Johnny Depp did in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he always needed something in his mouth as a prop, but it blocked their speech. In, in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, Johnny Depp is kind of... Biting onto that little cigarette holder for the whole time. Oh my God, I must, we must have this sweet. His teeth are always together, and he's kind of like half crazed on drugs. Whereas that movie is so chaotic, it kind of fits. In this one, Tom Hardy is chewing on this gigantic cigar butt, mm-hmm. and he's also growling like Nick Nolte. So you, he's incoherent. <laughs> and this movie's kind of incoherent. Uh, the yeah. first, the first thirty minutes of Capone is essentially just kind of bumming about the estate explaining to the audience from the perspective of the people around him mm-hmm. just how far gone he is. And we're, we're talking not, about his relatives, yeah. his wife, played by Linda Cardellini, who, God, someone give her a better role. Yeah, I'm so Jeez, sick and Rose. tired of her playing the wife of embarrassing mm. Italian-American leads. Mm. Can we can we stop that, yeah. please? Like, she deserves better roles than this. Um, but yeah, they live on this estate, and it's it's a bad situation for everyone because Capone is in mm. rapidly and steadily deteriorating health. Mm. Um, and on top of it all, they have no money. They have the estate. They own that outright. Mm. But they have no income. Mm. They're selling stuff from the house in order to keep the lights on, basically. Uh, and when Capone dies, they're, they're not going to have anything. So it's this really kind of just solemn march to doomsday with a protagonist who you know he's he's losing his mind and there's something to be said for this there's an interesting well, almost you could almost go here hmm. in like a king lear kind of thing where like he this once mighty titan and see how they have fallen but Josh Trank never really gives us the contrast. We never see him yeah. earlier, and even in the brief bits that do seem like flashbacks, they're not cool. Well, they're not I, like they don't show like oh how the mighty have fallen. There, there are a few bit where it, when it starts going into like the dream sequence territory. Yeah. Now C- Capone is losing his mind. He's he's half mad and he's hallucinating. And he's not just having, like, uh, paranoid fantasies. Like, he thinks one of the gardeners is out to get him. Yeah. So he keeps on staring down that one gardener. Yeah. Uh, while he was wearing diapers and chewing on his cigar and not saying anything. Mm. Uh, but occasionally he'll, like, get up, he'll wander into the hallway, and he'll start seeing uh, his compatriots as their younger selves. He'll have flashbacks to these really violent episodes in his life. All he has left are these weird dreamlike echoes of what his life once was. Mm-hmm. And it's playing out, like, this weird... Weird, like noir film in his head, and again, I and can almost see that working. Those, those sequences were pretty cool, and they actually reminded me of uh, the act of killing, where the mm. uh, the people who committed genocide were asked to make a film about themselves and kind of how they're heroes, and they saw themselves as these film archetypes. Here's the difference between Capone mm. and the act of killing. Besides mm. the fact that the act of killing is a horrifying documentary and brilliant, and you should see mm. it. 
the difference is I, the act of killing has a point. Mm. I'm not convinced Capone does. Here's the thing about Capone. Capone is about um, someone who was a titan, someone who has fallen from grace in a wide variety of ways, literal and figurative. And I'm not convinced by the end of the film that Josh Trank had anything he actually wanted to say about that. Mm. It seems to me as though the film is interested in the idea of this larger-than-life personality uh, on in their physical and mental decline, mm-hmm. but they're not interested in what that has to say about Capone, about the American dream of this kind of historical figure, of what G- anyone g- really giving th- justice to yeah. the people he's wronged, the, to any of that. The stuff. movie that I was most reminded of, and it's not a good comparison, while I was watching Capone, is actually Citizen Kane. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. That's and the, fair. And yeah. the reason why it's this is again, Josh Trank is very much in control of this production. He, this is the movie he wants to tell, mm-hmm. and much like a young Orson Welles, he's telling a story about an older person's life, which and their rise and their fall. But this is just about not even the fall; it's just the end of the fall. Just about the ending of it. Mm-hmm. Just it's just about that last chunk where where like, but just before Kane says Rosebud at the end. Citizen Kane has things on its mind. It has ideas about how the rise of this person said something about the culture that spawned him, about the historical period that spawned him, about uh, the male mindset that spawned him, about the capitalist mindset that spawned Mm -hmm. him. Um, And the way that people perceived him also was very indicative of the world in which he lived. It is a movie about things. Capone just points a camera at Tom Hardy and says, act weird. And I'm not convinced that Josh Trank, none of the characters have anything meaningful to add or discuss or observe about him. And, and they're just bummed out. They're all, they're all bummed out. They're not really sure what to make of this. Uh, there's a, a couple opening scenes where he's just like wetting his pants and mm-hmm. shrieking and sitting in poo. And it's just, it's just, unpleasant it feels like a geek show for yeah, a while yeah. it's just like see tom hardy like how and i can appreciate again you know again we i made the joke tom hardy isn't stretching his acting mars, mm. muscles he's pulling them uh but i'm excited to see when actors push the bounds of what we consider to be good acting <laughs> I, I actually mean that. I think if we don't take big swings and try new things, mm-hmm. we're never going to change anything. So I appreciate it when Nicolas Cage goes full cage, when he goes completely mad. I mm. actually honestly think o- overacting is not bad acting. Some of Nicolas Cage's best performances would, by conventional standards, be considered bad performances. Mm. Vampire's Kiss, I think, is one of the best performances of its era. I really do. I think it's a brilliant performance. I will go to bat for Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance as one of Nicolas Cage's better performances. Not top five. Maybe top 15. <laughs> That's still pretty good, yeah. though. So I appreciate that Josh Trank is... That's not Trank. That, uh, uh, Tom Hardy is taking this role knowing full well that in his first scene he's supposed to poop his pants and that he'll do it more... Like, at least two or three more times throughout the film. Mm. He is... Going from Venom to this, he is actively taking a role that defies common sense and logic. Mm. Because who knows? Maybe it'll be great. Maybe I'm going to try this. I'm going to put myself all out there. I'm going to be completely unafraid Mm. to look like an idiot. And maybe it'll be amazing. Maybe it will really actually achieve something 
that is raw and and personal and strange and affecting because we went to to degrees that no one else would go. The movie never meets him there. No, no never he's, once. He, he's he's running off in some direction that I don't know where he's going. And yeah. he, it's not that this is a great performance hidden in a bad movie that doesn't know what to do with him. This no. is an undirected performance that's just flying in all directions at once. Yeah, it it doesn't have it doesn't have any kind of bedrock about the character. It's not trying to say it's not a character. Yeah, it's just a big bundle of weird habits and and uh, ticks. He's a concept that poops himself. <laughs> Put that on your poster, right? Like, is, a, is a concept that poops himself. And again, you can tell a story about different periods in, in anyone's life. Maybe mm. not like what you might consider the height or the zenith of their powers. Mm. And there might be a really interesting story there. There's a lot of stories about people's declining years or whatever, and the impact that they had on others. And I don't know. I, as I'm watching this movie, I keep seeing other better movies. <laughs> Just flit by mm-hmm. like there's a, there's a tw- like the last twenty minutes, we cut to like FBI headquarters, where a young G man mm. is asking permission to go to Capone's estate. Said, "Listen, Capone is dying. We know he's dying. We've been monitoring his house the entire mm. time, just in case he says something oh. incriminating or whatever." Oh gosh, I'm I'm gonna look up the name of the actor who plays the Fed because that we're gonna keep an eye on that guy. Okay. That guy's gonna be a star. He's clearly got talent. Yeah. Um. But he has to convince his superiors, like, give yourself, like, listen, we don't care about Capone. We arrested him, like, 15 years ago. We're done. We got everything we're going to get out of him. And the guy just says, look, he still knows about murders that haven't happened yet. There's still tons of money unaccounted for. It's, maybe it's a fool's errand, but this is the last chance we're Mm -hmm. ever going to have to try to get this information out of him. And maybe he's on his deathbed. Maybe Mm -hmm. he'll be interested in checking it out. It's the same plot point that Martin Scorsese used towards the end of The Irishman. That's a whole movie. Mm. I, I would watch that movie. That's just this one young federal agent who has these like very simple ideas of who Al Capone is, interviewing Al Capone in his later years, trying to get him to self-incriminate. There's a story there. It's a bit contrived, but it's focused. It has a structure. Yeah. It has a point. You could tell a story like that. And the movie just sort of brings up the idea of that kind of story that like, ooh, maybe we're getting somewhere. <gasps> no, he's just going to shit himself and then the scene will be over and we'll never see that <laughs> FBI agent again. The FBI agent, by the way, is played by an actor named uh, Jack Loudon, who's al- oh, yeah. who's actually already been in a lot of uh, high-profile projects. He was in uh, Dunkirk. He was in uh, uh, Mary Queen of Scots. He was in Fighting With My Family. Uh, so he, he's been around. Yeah. But keep an eye on that guy because he's going to be leading up some superhero Swarm films Jack soon Loudon enough. played a different yeah. character. But anyway... Um, I don't know, I, I, I've seen a reason to dwell on it. There's um, a couple of scenes that someday will end up on Tom Hardy's highlight reel. Look out for when uh, he whips out a golden Tommy gun, because the movie will get interesting for about five minutes, mm. and then it will stop very quickly. Uh, but this is, it's not so bad that it's just like, it's not like legendarily bad or embarrassing. It's, it's just a gigantic... It's pretty bad. No, but uh, I wouldn't put it up... I'm trying to think of like... It's no cats. Well, you know? yeah. It's, it's not mean, like, wow, you have to see this kind of bad. But it is It is a bad idea from the start. It's, yeah. it's uh, anchored or buoyed or however you want to put it by a very strange performance by a very talented person. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it has, it has no direction. It's just kind of reveling in its own poo. And... Again, if, if, you had, if you had a, a poo-interested uh, director, 
Like, uh, uh, you have an example of this, don't you? Oh, gee, of course I do. Uh, Who's look, a poo interested director? Look, look at somebody. Like, I'm, I'm trying to. Um, I'm thinking Keep of the digging. movie Ted Bundy. Okay. Uh, directed by Matthew Bright. Who also okay, did the Matthew movie Bright. Freeway. Matthew Bright Matthew would have Br- had something to say about Capone. Yeah, he, he would yeah. have told the same story about this madman is crapping in the bed. Yeah. But he would have made it seem like this weird kind of Grand Guignol experience. It would have been this weird, dizzying phantasmagoria mm-hmm. of Half remembered life, a half remembered life of crime. You're making me think of Matthew Bright as the American Ken Russell when you put it like that. Yeah, Ken Russell is another one. Yeah, he he, he really would have d- dug into the weird kind of gallows of this. Mm-hmm. Or, or heck, somebody who's even funny about it, like John Waters. He would have done. John Waters would have made too. it funny. I think Gus Van Zant would have made it kind of interesting. I think he's good in these yeah, kind of like intimate like character it pieces. Wouldn't have been like a vomitorium. It would have been no, much more contemplative. Not. It would have been more like Last Days. Yeah, exactly the movie I was thinking about. Yeah, we did already make the movie, but Capone is a very different character. Um, Anyway, if you're a huge Tom Hardy fan, you will see him do things he hasn't done before. Mm -hmm. If you're not a huge Tom Hardy fan, don't maybe don't see this because you'll see him do things you don't want to see him do, like poop himself a lot. (laughs) Maybe it's not worth it. Um, in any case, huge misfire. Huge, huge misfire. Huge These are two giant misfire. stinkers in a row. Please tell me Mother's Little Helpers is, is better. Uh, it's better, but it's boring. Uh, no, I, I have to, to say right away that I actually uh, know one of the actors in this movie personally. Oh, okay. um, uh, she's not a very close friend of mine, but we've been camping together. Uh, oh, okay. her, her name is Melanie Hutzel. She's known for uh, comedy films. But in this one, Melanie Hutzel plays... Uh, the dying matriarch of a family of millennials and they all have to get together and all the brothers and sisters are alienated from one another and they smoke weed and they talk about their problems and by the end it's everybody hugs. Um, <laughs> you've seen this movie before. Uh, this is actually a very common kind of trope of mm. alienated siblings coming together over an ailing parent or some family emergency. Oh yeah. Uh, this uh, was, and uh, some amazing movies have been made with exactly that structure. Yeah, Big uh, Fish. That's what Big Fish is. Big Fish. Is. Yeah, uh, good um, the, the one I saw a couple of years ago was called This Is Where I Leave You, which had mm. Jason Bateman. One I really uh, like is uh, Barbarian Invasions. I didn't see Barbarian Invasions. It's really, really, really excellent really Canadian but, film about yeah. just family coming together when the, one of the, fam- mm. when the father or grandfather is dying and uh, they want to mm. um, you know, end their own life mm. you know, because it's so much suffering and it's all about them coming to terms with that and... It's great. It's like on top. Yeah, it's sad, but it's actually really beautiful and kind of funny, and mm. it's really, really excellent. I highly right. recommend it. But uh, the the family, the the family, the Pride family. Their name is Pride. Are uh, you know, Sadie, Julia, Lucy, and Jude. Uh, they all have their own personal dramas. Uh, one of uh, Sadie, the main character, just learned that she was pregnant, but she doesn't know if she wants to share that with her siblings because they're all really self obsessed and self absorbed. One of them is uh, really promiscuous. One of them is just a, a little bit flighty. Uh, and they're trying to stage these younger characters as kind of like exemplars of the millennial experience. So there's a lot of talks of uh, being an influencer and being on your phone a lot and communicating only in terms of how you think about yourself. Yeah. And so there's even a, a scene early on where uh, the the main character, the Sadie character, is trying played by, uh, let me look up the actress, uh, Kestrin Pantera is the actress's name. Okay. Uh, She's trying to tell uh, her siblings that mother is dying of aggressive cancer and they're so busy talking about themselves that they don't hear her. 
so that that's kind of the the theme of what we're we're dealing with here, and they all get together, and everything progresses pretty predictably. What I do appreciate though is that uh, the Sadie character has uh, multiple flashbacks about being raised by her her mom and how when she's starting to remember these things uh, now as an adult, she starts to realize that her mother was actually really absent for a lot of the things she remembers. Mm. That her mom was actually this kind of free love flower child, like 70, not, not Woodstock generational, a little younger, but like of the seventies generation who was still trying to live free and be a little bit more of a free spirit and how it was actually her mom's uh, sister. Her aunt was the one who was actually doing a lot of the, the actual parenting in this Mm -hmm. situation. So I like that, you know, in the flashbacks, she's coming to terms with sort of how she thought about her mother. There's a big reveal. They try to sell these big sort of slapstick moments amidst all of the big uh, dramatic moments. It plays out really pat. Uh, There's no big surprise. If you've ever seen a movie like this before, it just sort of runs in sort of in the same sort of way. The performances are pretty good. Mm-hmm. across the board but it feels really really lo-fi uh like like the uh the filmmakers maybe didn't have the budget or the time they needed to really make it breathe <laughs> um yeah it, and it comes across as just sort of meh <laughs> just meh well that's too bad it's meh yeah but it's better than Scoob and Capone it, so it's better you know, than Scoob and Capone at least it's like a, a movie a, a capable movie yeah uh, so we're going to review these films on the critically acclaimed scale. The critically acclaimed scale, as you may or may not know, uh, goes from uh, C- minus to C+, plus, mm-hmm. with a C being average. Most movies are average. You know, they're, they're okay. Mm-hmm. Not amazing. Not terrible. Yeah. C- minus is below average. C- mm-hmm. minus is pretty bad. C- minus could also be really bad. <laughs> and C- plus is genuinely pretty good. Or... Mm-hmm. Really good. <laughs> we will not be using the C plus rating this week. No, we won't. Uh, Mother's Little Helpers, Whitney. Where do you Where do you land? It's a C. Uh, not 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 even a very passionate one. It just sort of it, it is blandly efficient and kind of forgettable. Okay. unfortunately. Uh, Cap- with with yeah. apologies to the person I know. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you're you're honest and you're upfront about it, and we appreciate that. Uh, Capone. Uh, Capone is an interesting failure. But it is a failure nonetheless. But it is a failure nonetheless. I don't think it works on its own terms. I don't think the movie is a good delivery system for whatever Tom Hardy is doing. Mm. Uh, And ultimately, it feels kind of pointless. It feels like a young director who has a lot to prove and just wanted to do something really in your face. I've seen young directors make worse films under that, like, premise, under that, like... Motive. I don't know where but we not, got in our head that. Much. I don't know where we got in our head that Josh Trank is like this sort of suffering artist whose art needs to be taken seriously. We he got it from Josh Trank. He's the one who just kept yeah. on saying. Now Chronicle well, was fine, but I'm not going to say that was like a striking work of a Chronicle daring is quite new good. auteur. I, I actually think the Chronicle is a quite good film. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic is terrible. However. In whatever, I will probably never see whatever Josh Trank actually wanted to do with that movie. There's well-documented studio interference and reshoots and things, mm-hmm. and nobody's happy with the finished product of that. Uh, and then he was going to be making a Boba Fett movie for uh, Lucasfilm, and then uh, that collapsed. And 
he went into a short exile and he came back with Capone. There's a huge like new interview with him talking about everything that he went through. And I'm not going to invalidate anything that he went through. I'm not going to say that what he went through isn't interesting or the kind of thing that might lead to good films. What I am going to say is that Capone is not that film. No, uh, Capone not. is not Capone is not that like shot across the bow that lets you know that like uh, we should give him more work. I'm not convinced. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe still do, not convinced. Maybe maybe do some TV. Let's see mm. if we can work with some structure. Uh, and uh, uh, and then lastly, Scoob. I'm sorry, we gave that one a C minus. Okay, That's then a C minus. Just to be clear, yeah. but Scoob is also a C minus. It's a dispassionate C minus. I don't like. I, 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 my I, initial thought was that I hated it, but I, at the end, I'm just sort of mildly mad at it. <laughs> like it just—it just seems like a kind of a waste mm, of mm. a lot of characters and goodwill. It's, it's not as good as Sonic the Hedgehog. I still need to see. And Sonic that the is Hedgehog. a sad thing I just said. I still need to see Sonic the Hedgehog. No, you don't. I'll, I need to get to it at some point, <laughs> if only because there will be questions about it on the Schmodown. At um, some point, I need to put that thing in front of my eyeballs and just try. Mm. Um, so anyway, that are the, those are the new releases for this week. Uh, now it's time for the critically acclaimed streaming club. Mm-hmm. Once again, we try to uh, bounce around to different streaming services and different genres and talk about films that one or both of us have missed. Yeah. Uh, this week we wanted to do family films on Hulu because Hulu, it turns out, doesn't have a great selection of movies, and family films was like the only genre we could find where there were actual like. Like selections, actual like films that like neither of us had seen that were like enough to fill out a poll. I'm really surprised that because on that poll was Free Willy, Free Willy, uh, yeah. a rather notorious film, probably because of its silly title more than anything. But a lot of kids grew up watching it. I don't I think never it's notorious. It. I think it's actually very well liked. No, I mean it. it well. It it was the butt of many jokes because of its silly title. That's true, and but I a think lot of people... that's why it kind of lingered in the consciousness no. longer than it would have otherwise. No, I think people actually have a genuine emotion. If you yeah. haven't, that's one you hadn't seen, I, I, and I haven't seen. Free Willy, I, I've so actually yeah. seen Free Willy. It's been a long time since I've seen mm. Free Willy, and awkward title aside, it's actually a pretty sincere kind of original Airbud kind of Buena and animal movie. It's mm. people I think have a genuine connection to that film. Right. Uh, that was on the list as well. Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. Uh, was on that was on that list as well. Uh, I can't remember what the fourth thing was, but the thing that an Olsen twins movie. Oh, it was an Olsen twins yeah. movie. That's right. Throw it in as a ringer. Uh, I thought everyone would vote for it too, but I don't mm. know. Sometimes I can't predict you guys. Um, but what won was Ants. Ants. Now, which is one of two DreamWorks animation projects that was on the uh, that was on the poll. Spirit was as yeah. well. Uh, Ants, however, is historically significant on a couple of different levels. Uh, first off, it was the first CG animated film from DreamWorks Animation. It is also the third feature length uh, animated CG film ever. Mm. So. The first one being right. Toy Story. Yeah, and, the and then there was, an, there was an independent one in the middle okay. uh, there. And then there was uh, Ants, which came out just before, in 1998, Pixar's A Bug's Life. Now, a month before. Yeah. They, they were in theaters at the same time. It was one of those years, and they, we run into them, seems like every other year, where there are major projects that have a suspiciously similar theme. And you just know that, like... Both of them were probably in development, but once one of them started getting like a lot of buzz and like word in the press, mm. some other studio was just like, "Well, hurry! Listen, they're working on Volcano. Hurry up with Dante's Peak." Yeah, you just know somewhere like they were, they got into a race. Um, 
So there was a big race between A Bug's Life and Ants, and there was an extra big race uh, because Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, had was uh, really trying to prove himself and was trying to make sure that DreamWorks Animation could be seen as a major competitor for Disney because by the late 90s, Disney had pretty much re-solidified itself as the only major theatrically released animation game in town. There were a few other, like Don Bluth movies mm. that were making money, but mostly yeah, Disney Dr- was the face yeah. of American animation once again. DreamWorks launched in 97, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and it was a big deal. Like, this was an the a, new studio. An a yeah. Hollywood player that was a brand new studio founded by three gigantic power players. It was mm-hmm. Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen. And, uh, they yeah they launched in a big way a lot of their films were maybe not necessarily big hits but they were big studio releases right out of the gate uh, their stuff was, like what the was, peacemaker that was their and, first uh, one it was a big uh, uh, thriller starring Nicole Kidman and George Clooney it's fine. They did a really big animated film called The Prince of Egypt, which is still quite good to this day. It is, uh, actually. Yeah. I like that one, yeah. In many ways, it's superior to The Ten Commandments. It's the yeah. same story. Um, I think it came out the same year as Ants, just later in the year. Yeah, it was a Christmas release. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, they, they came out with this film, Ants, and Ants was uh, a CG animated film. The The animation is dated, but I'm not going to blame uh, that. That's just technology and, at the time. Yeah, there's only so much we can do about that. But yeah, it's and it was... Uh, using animation in ways that hadn't been done before. It looks kind of plain to our eye now, but the idea of animating an entire 3D vista where many, many characters were congregating at the same time... Mm -hmm. uh, Was really ambitious. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're all ants. They all literally are the same character model, but it was They got a a big sense of scale. There's a scene in the movie where uh, two of the ants get stuck on the gum on the bottom of someone's shoe, and the shoe is like seen as this gigantic towering thing that's kind of recedes away from the camera. That kind of thing was novel at the time. These were spectacles yeah, in there's a, a scene early on where uh, hundreds and hundreds of ants form a gigantic ball and turn into a giant wrecking ball. Do that ants do that? Yes, they do. Ants form a giant wrecking ball. They do. They form their bodies together and they smash into stuff. No shit. That's a real thing. Okay. I yeah. didn't know that one. I mean, it's not like hundreds in a giant sphere like that, but yeah. Okay. That's, weird. And ants do a lot of weird, weird, creepy crap. They do. And both A Bug's Life and Ants had to make, had to pick and choose what was going to be important. For example, in A Bug's Life, the ants only have four appendages. Yeah, it was easier to animate, I It suppose. was easier to animate yeah. it that way. It's fine. It's a little weird. Well, they're also like pastel colors in that one. They're really yeah. kind of like friendly kitty colors. Now, ants, they have six appendages, but they kind of cheat it because two of them are just legs. Yeah, they, they, yeah, the back their back four legs are just sort of walking. Yeah. They're walking they walk around like leg. bipeds. They they're yeah. also they're really disturbingly designed. I hate mm-hmm. the faces that they right. chose for the ants in this movie. And again, early CG. We're not going to go like too much. Like you know, com- we're not going to complain too much about like, like the, rendering. The, the dead or, eyes like, or the movement of yeah, the mouths or anything. But like the that. actual yeah. design of the ants is repellent. They mm. are weirdly proportioned. They're brown and bulbous. They look like just sticks of poo just walking around. And and, and they got these weird kind of like weirdly like widely spaced Mm. eyeballs that give them these weird kind of deer like these kind of misshapen heads. A decision was clearly made early on to try to make the overall aesthetic of the ants and their world... Um, somewhat realistic. Obviously, they don't. Yeah, yeah, obviously, they don't have like a tavern in an actual ant colony. Like that part's obviously broader, but it's all dirt colored. 
There's no like color variation with the ants, so it looks really samey and really kind of grim and glum. Mm. Um, it's not a fun film to look at, and there's a certain early CG films in particular where I want to get into it. I can appreciate maybe there's good writing involved, but because of early design work, or again, you take a big swing, you just miss. Mm. I can't. Case in point, Monster House. <laughs> Monster House is an assault on my eyes. Maybe if I'd seen it when I'd come out, I'd be mm. used to it. But I've tried watching oh, it it's... after the fact a couple of times, and I just can't. It's painful to look the, at. The, the character design isn't great in that movie. Uh, and it's also motion capture. Yeah. They did, which doesn't do any favors to the weird design. Mm-hmm. Also, the idea of the house is not haunted. It's itself this like living creature is an interesting idea. For I love that idea. That's a cool idea. Yeah. I want to like that movie. I just can't mm. watch it. Like It's actually just <laughs> physically hard for me to watch the movie. Uh, I, uh, Monster House is... I'll, I'll give a pass to Monster House. I know House. a lot of people like, do. I'm just describing yeah, a personal problem. I I'll give a pass to Ants, though, because of that weird design. And the story is clearly not something they... like. Clearly they're thinking it out, uh-huh. but they're not really thinking about exploring ant world all that interestingly. All they know about ants uh-huh. is that there are workers and there are soldiers yeah. and there's the queen. So there's like the royalty. Yeah. And they so of course there's a, there's a hierarchy of yeah, there, There's a hierarchy of, of ants and they turn that into class struggle. That's yeah. pretty a pretty obvious thing. If you ever wanted to see an animated film that like combined like the works of Ayn Rand <laughs> And Jesus, I don't even know who else. There's, like, there's someone else I feel who's in there. Um, well, it's well, the story. There's a is, lot of Ayn yeah. Rand, actually. Yeah, it's weird when people say the kids' movies didn't used to have politics in them. Watch Ants. It's a- really Ants, Ants is in very, your face. very aggressively political, and uh, a lot of people may have trouble with it because it also stars Woody Allen as the protagonist. Uh, as, as the protagonist, and Woody Be- Allen didn't do this sort of thing a lot. So this in 1998. This was considered something of a coup. This was a novel thing. Like, again, in the late 90s, like, there were some more celebrities doing animated movies, but it wasn't until Shrek. Shrek really codified it. broke it it open, I think. But I think DreamWorks was really trying to lead the charge and making sure that all of the major characters in these movies Mm. were voiced by big celebrities. The the cast list on Ants is nuts. So, in addition to... For a late 90s animated film. Yeah. So Before so, this sort of thing was common. Yeah. Here's who we got. So, here's movie. a big summer blockbuster, huge hit animated film in which the protagonist is played by Woody Allen. Weird. Weird. It also co-stars Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Christopher Walken... Sylvester Stallone, Danny Glover, Danny Glover, and Jennifer Lopez, and there are others like <laughs> oh, is it like Vanessa Redgrave in this or um, oh, who um, plays the Queen Ant? Is it? Um, it's not Vanessa Redgrave. No, it's, it's not Vanessa uh, Redgrave. Um, the Graduate. It's, it's Anne Bancroft. Anne Bancroft. Thank you. What a ridiculous mm. cast that is. And That's uh, absurd. That cast. A, now there's a cameo later on by a pair of wasps. Wasps. Get it? Because they're, they're very snotty, upper crust, mm-hmm. white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. I, I, I get it. I get it. And they're played by Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin. That sort of thing you might see in an animated yeah, film. Yeah, that one wasn't like outside the mm-hmm. realm of the norm, but like getting that huge cast. Mm-hmm. That, again, that is DreamWorks just putting a flag in the ground and saying, we are here, we are a and major animation player. 
And you know who played the shrink at the beginning? It's like, we don't see the shrink. Is but it it's Paul like, Mazursky? It's Paul Mazursky. Yeah. Paul Mazursky yes. they got. Because oh. kids love Paul Mazursky. <laughs> the director of Bob and Carol and <laughs> Ted and Alice. And Bloom in Love. And yeah. Moscow on the Hudson and it's other movies. It's surreal to me. I think what they were getting at by having this giant cast, and in particular by having Woody Allen uh, in the lead. And this is at a point where Woody Allen was not the pariah that he is now. Um... I think they were trying to attract adults into the theaters by saying like, "Oh, this is a this is an ant movie." It was PG rated, which is really novel. Uh, there's actually some casual swearing. There's horrific violence, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, I think they were trying to show that this is not your kids' ant movie. This is an ant movie for everybody. So we're gonna we're gonna appeal to you by because we know that when you think blockbusters, you think Woody Allen. Well, I, I mean, it, the late '90s were a, a little bit of a weird time, weren't they? Yes, uh, I th- they were. I th- you know, indies were really kind of on the rise, and uh, a lot of studios were panicking. They didn't really know how to get a pop audience. And I think Disney, by the late '90s, even though they were still making hits, like clearly the Renaissance was over. This is the time they were making like Tarzan. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think Tarzan was ninety nine. It was a couple 90, years. Yeah. Later. It was one year later. One year later, yeah, but uh, the, it was it was post Punchback of Notre Dame, which was when they really kind of stumbled for the first time out of their their yeah. sort of renaissance. It made money. It's actually a good mm. movie for the most part, but it was not the huge giant no, hit they no, wanted. No, yeah. no, no. Uh, no. So yeah, the, like they came back with uh, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, The Lion King. These are all gigantic hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the one after that was. Did they do one? What was after? I think her, it was. Um, was Hercules two thousand? Was Hercules before or after Tarzan? Hercules is, I think, after Tarzan. Okay. I don't remember the exact. I know Mulan was before Tarzan. There was this period uh, where, like, I think from Hunchback onward, I think yeah, I think Mulan was after Hunchback, but they started to move into hey, instead of doing these like fanciful oh, fairy tale musicals, it was Pocahontas that was before yes. uh, Hunchback. So yeah, uh, th- those were all big hits. But they started to try to have more action-oriented animated movies, and then they started having mm-hmm. more males, uh, male-centered uh, animated movies because it felt like they were trying to expand upon mm-hmm. what they saw as their demographic. Meanwhile, DreamWorks actually had a mission, like a I bet it was written down too, a mm-hmm. mission statement to counter all of that. By trying to feel a lot more modern, mm-hmm. they were trying to be a little bit more hip. They were trying to uh, capture a little bit broader of an audience. Uh, they weren't trying to make specifically, you know, fairy tale kinds of movies. Yeah, Disney already had that on lock, so they were going mm-hmm. to be. And by like, the time they did Shrek, they were actively making fun of Disney. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So it felt and, like it and, felt hip. Yeah, Shrek is is sort of their mission statement writ large. I kind of hate Shrek, by the way. <laughs> I was actually trying to get a line. You know, do people still like love the Shrek movies, or is it just sort of like a really bad Baskin Robbins flavor now? Because uh, it, it feels I, so grossly commercial. I feel like they basically killed Shrek as a major property. Mm. Like because they they made Shrek. Shrek was an unexpected hit. It won the first ever Academy Award mm-hmm. for Best Animated Feature. The same year Waking Life came out, which is some bullshit. Waking Life wasn't even nominated, because I think the Academy has issues with rotoscoping and motion capture. I don't think they're fans. It was up against uh, Monsters, Inc. and And Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius that year. I think Monsters, Inc. should have won. Of course it should have. It's a longer movie. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm just making a point. Anyway, my point is that Shrek was a big deal. Um, And the first Shrek is witty. It's actually got some really funny bits in it. I don't dislike the first Shrek. All right. Shrek 2 comes out, and it's Shrek, but more of it. You know, I, I, high-octane Shrek. I, there's some funny jokes. I don't really remember it terribly well. And then the sequels just... 
started to just follow the basic pattern. They would change the storylines, but the jokes were all basically the same, and they'd relearn the same lessons. Puss in Boots was actually pretty funny. I saw Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots wasn't bad. Puss in Boots was not amazing, but Puss in Boots was pretty good. Um, But... Yeah, they fell, in, they fell into a pattern here. But early DreamWorks Animation, they were trying some different things. Their first wave of films before Shrek. Hmm. They did four animated films before Shrek. They did Ants. Hmm. They did Prince of Egypt, which was a biblical epic. They took it really seriously. Yeah, it was a musical, but it wasn't like a fun musical. Hmm. It was like an intense, dramatic musical. Um, and that movie was really good. The Road to El Dorado, where they were trying to do this sort of... Road movie. Yeah. Road movie slash adventure movie. And it's not amazing, but the animation's really good. There's good stuff in it. Uh, and then they did Chicken Run, which is which great. Is gr- I love Chicken Run. Chicken Run rules, man. So yeah, like they, they, they were... They, they got a hold of Ardman. So, yeah, DreamWorks was, and still is, hmm. with their animated fare, really trying to push the envelope in terms of... Uh, just fun, broad pop appeal. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of their films I haven't seen because they look awful. Like I, I, I haven't seen Shark Tale, for instance. Oh, I never saw Shark Tale. Wait, was Shark Tale, even them. Shark Tale it was. was yeah, it, Shark Tale right, was a bad. DreamWorks film. I've actually uh, never seen B movie, which I understand I mean, is like yeah, the better see, version of Ants, is what I've been okay, told. I didn't see B movie um, either. But a- Monsters vs. Aliens is really good. Mm. Oh, I didn't see Monsters. Mon- it's really fun. Yeah. It's a really, really fun monster movie for kids. Like I like that movie a lot. Mega Mind is better than I thought it would be. It's re- rather sharply written and entertaining. Okay, um, but you can, you can Rise of the Guardians is quite solid. You can see sort of what yeah. the, what the through and of Rise of the Guardians again, mm-hmm. new, new kind of animation style. At least they're they're being trying to be a little bit more innovative and broadly pop. But at the same time, there's something kind of grossly over commercial about what they're trying to do. Like sure. it's a, the kids, old guys trying to talk hit for the kids. Yeah. Ants doesn't quite have that feeling, but it does have a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. it's, in, it's, when you think about in terms it, of its mood, well, it's its mood and also its whole scheme. So the plot of Ants is actually a little belabored, but essentially the idea is uh, our protagonist Z uh, is a neurotic ant because, of course, he fucking is uh, living in an ant colony where everything is the same. There's only three casts. And whatever you're born and assigned to, that's your whole life. You have no options, no choices, no free will. Mm. And he doesn't like it. He has no sense of self. How could he? But whereas most of the other ants are basically fine with it, he Mm. is frustrated. Uh, The princess of the ants, who will eventually become the queen, is uh, about to uh, be married to the lead soldier ant, played by Gene Hackman. Uh, the princess ant, played by Sharon Stone, uh, decides to have like one of those like princesses day out things that start a lot of movies, like Aladdin and such. So she goes to the tavern. She slums down to where the workers, worker yeah. ants hang out. Where uh, the ants are all robotically dancing to Guantanamera. Hmm. I don't understand the significance of that song choice. That makes no sense to me. Well, that it's, it's actually a, a really lively song but they try to flatten it out and say it's it's still a dance song but yeah they're just sort of it's like 915 time to dance feels like a missed opportunity to have a song that could actually like resonate and like be like like everybody's working for the weekend actual work like you could do that been working uh, on an ant farm going down, down something yeah. um but uh, she meets z uh, Z, who is uh, you know, bored with the usual dance, bored with the yeah. usual dance, decides to dance different steps. So it's basically strictly ballroom, new steps. Yeah. Uh, and she's rather taken with him. Mm. 
And then, she, of course, she flees because she's not supposed to be there. And he realizes he's never going to see her again because he's a worker ant. So he talks to his best friend, a soldier ant, played by Sylvester Stallone. And he talks him into trading place, trading jobs for one day so mm. that he can get closer to the Sharon Stone ant and say hi. Sure enough, the day he does that is the day that the Gene Hackman ant is going to war against the termites. It's actually weird, this whole war against the termites subplot, because mm. it's all about how Gene Hackman only wants the war for his own selfish reasons. If this movie were made now, that would be seen as probably a commentary on like the war in the Middle East right now, mm. like the, the one that George W. Bush started, and how it was kind of tenuous and only seemed to serve a political end, and that's the, the story that history will tell about it. But this is the late 90s. This one just... It, I don't know if it's prescient or just random, but like mm-hmm. it's it's not connected to that. It's, it's like just the, a coincidence. The, the, the world is crap right now, and this is like at the end of the Clinton administration. No, like no, we gran- weren't at war at that time. No, granted, there were other bullshit wars that this could have absolutely been based on. Mm-hmm. But if it were now, it's just interesting to watch it now because if this were made now, this would totally everyone would say it was about mm-hmm. the Bush years. Um, our hero goes to war, and the war is. Fucking horrifying. It's a complete massacre, and they, they at least have uh, the scale between ants and termites, correct? The termites yeah. are huge compared yeah. to the ants. It looks like Starship Troopers, which yeah. apparently is a coincidence. Um, but it's also as violent as Starship Troopers. Like, people get sprayed with acid, and they, they melt, and at the very end, when there's just dead ant bodies, all and they're ugly brown ant yeah. bodies. Just it's, it's an obs- it's an upsetting image no matter yeah. what age you are. I can only imagine what it would have been like as a little kid. What happens is they have that scene in the in the war movie where someone's injured and it's just like, oh, we're going to make it, man. But you don't have any legs and you know it's all over. Yeah. They do that scene with Z and the soldier ant played by Danny Glover. Mm. And Z's cradling Danny Glover's head. It's like, hey, it's going to be okay, man. And Danny Glover's like, I can't feel my legs. And that's when you realize Danny Glover is a severed head. Just a head. It's ghoulish. Like, it's a really horrifying scene. Like, it's really creepy and weird. Especially when you realize the plot hasn't started yet. Z comes home. He's the only surviving ant. So he's treated as a war hero. And, of course, Gene Hackman is shocked to discover he's not a soldier ant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sharon Stone has this brief moment where she realizes, wait a minute. If a worker ant could be the best soldier we had in the army, maybe our entire paradigm is fucked. And just as she starts asking that, Woody Allen gets freaked out and kidnaps her and runs mm. away. And the story of this worker ant who became a soldier ant, who became a gladiator... Starts spreading through the, the workers. Yeah. And it leads to this weird metropolis-like uprising. Yeah. That's what it was combined with. It's more like a oh, metropolis. That's what I was thinking right. of. Um, so yeah, so while Woody Allen and Sharon Stone are having the cliched two characters who aren't supposed to be together are off lost in the woods and get in various misadventures where they have to save each other's lives and form a bond. The, 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 uh, and their journey leads them to Insectopia, which it turns out is a garbage can. Yeah, just a whole, bu- is, whole right. bunch of trash. Which is fine. It's fine, yeah. It's There's a weird joke. It's so, like, inappropriate for a kid's movie. Mm. It's not, like, horrifying or anything, but it's just, you know, like, not what you put in a kid's movie. Where um, two bugs are just eating crumbs of stuff, and one bug says, oh, this tastes like crap. Well, let me try some. It does taste like crap. Good, right? Yeah. This is good crap. Like, mm. wow, okay, that's... 
Well, there's also that's, also a bit where just, uh, that's just gross. A- ants actually like s- sap fluids out of other creatures. So in the bar scene, they're actually like picking up little bugs and drinking out of them. Those are their drinks. Uh-huh. And and Z says, I, "I feel uncomfortable drinking from the anus of another creature." What's weird? Like, that's, is, that's not a line anyone would write today. What's weird is that in the commercial for ants, I re- or the trailer, I forget yeah. if it was in both. They, they said rear end. I no, think. they said caboose. Caboose. That's I'm uncomfortable right. drinking from the caboose of another animal. Yeah. And I'm just going to say this right now: caboose is a funnier word than anus. Yeah. Like it's actually a funnier line censored than it, is in, <laughs> yeah. than it is in the film, which is pretty ironic. Um, so I always thought that was kind of weird. But mm. there are just some words are funnier. Like if you're going to a place, mm. it's funnier if it's Walla Walla, Washington than if it's New York City. <laughs> it's just funnier. Like it's yeah, not I, funny, but it's funnier. Uh, the the writers of Futurama on one of their uh, commentary tracks did say that. Uh, they weren't really sure how to write a certain scene and they came to the conclusion that the word underpants is 10% funnier than underwear. Yep. You say underwear, that's, that's pretty funny. You say underpants, that's a lot funnier. Yeah. It's a little, it, little bit more of a punch with underpants. Some words are just funnier. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Sharon Stone ant gets kidnapped by the Christopher Walken ant and she gotta go back mm-hmm. because the Gene Hackman ant wants to kill all the worker ants mm-hmm. in a mass genocide wants a I, mili- mil- military coup of the ant colony. Here's what I don't understand about Gene Hackman ant. Hmm. You know the worker ants serve a function, right? <laughs> you know that they're there so that the soldier ants can hmm. be soldiers and not have to do all the manual labor. I'm not saying it's a good system. It's in the movie's hmm. universe and, in, of course, in the real world and the real life. That's a fucked up system. But if you kill all the people hmm. who can do one job... Hmm. That job doesn't get done. Yeah. What's your end game, Gene Hackman Ant? <laughs> His end game apparently is to, I guess he's going to kill the queen and he's going to basically, and this is something that they like don't address, but it's really creepy when you think about it. Mm. He wants to turn Sharon Stone into the new queen so that she will, and she describes it like, give birth to a baby like once every minute for the once, rest once of her life. Once every 10 seconds. For yeah. like the rest of her life, which is. Real Cronenbergian, the way she describes it. <laughs> it's not the norm. We see I mean, that, the queen that is, ant. That is, again, ant, ant biology. I realize but, uh, that, but when you start equating ant society to human society, there just are very key differences. There's this weird bit where we're with the ant queen, uh, mm. Ant Bancroft, and... Um, I, I was waiting for one of those to come Thank up. you. Uh, and she's giving birth to all these ants, and there's just this steady stream of people taking pupae, like away from her, but what they're, they, la- they're larvae. Okay, they haven't. They have not yet pupated. I apologize. They're larvae. It's been a long time since I took entomology classes. Um, but uh, what they do is they very briefly hand her each one, so they have like one moment of connection with the mother, mm. and then move on. And for some reason, that added element makes it creepier to me. <laughs> it's like it's like this weird brave new world kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it's all like super weird and. It also reminds you that literally everyone in this colony, including every character who has, like, a love connection, like Sylvester Stallone and Jennifer Lopez ants, the Gene Hackman, Sharon Stone ants, they're all siblings. They all came from the same queen. So, like, the more you incorporate ant society into the movie, the creepier the movie gets. And not I'm, in a fun way. I'm willing to forgive it, A, because they're ants, and B, uh, they don't look like 
people. They look like these weird mutant creatures. We're they, supposed to connect with them on a human level, though, right? I, I suppose, but you know, there's so also. So when they call attention to the things that are also distinctly. An, it's also human. an animated film, so there's going to be necessarily a bit of dif- distance between those creatures and, and the if audience. David Cronenberg directed mm. a CGI film about ants, I would be fine with it, but this is like for kids. I would it love gets to weird. see David Cronenberg direct an animated ant film. That'd Damn be, right you would. Yeah, that'd be the most amazing thing ever. Just call it Colony. Yeah. Um, it all ends with uh, they're gonna flood the the ant colony, and the Woody Allen ant saves all the ants, and they're like gonna climbing up. Well, he, he organizes them all together. He climbs up their bodies, and he saves the day, and yeah. takes down the bad guy. Uh, Structurally, it's weird and takes forever to get going, but it kind of works. It, it kind of works. Uh, it doesn't hold up. No. No, it, it was seen as really revolutionary at the time. I looked up some reviews, and they were all very positive about just sort of the, the glowing visuals and kind of the the uh, visual uh, imagination that went into creating this world of ants. These de- even Outside at the time, even, even even at the time, I thought the the design was creepy because I remember seeing this in theaters. Uh, the one part I really like about this movie is the score. I think it has a really good mm-hmm. uh, good opening theme. Yeah, uh, I liked it so much, in fact, that when I found the ants soundtrack, the original score in a dollar bin, oh. I bought it. Wow. And I had it. And I listened to the opening theme. I was like, okay, and the rest is just movie score. If you've ever fallen into the trap of buying a movie score and you realize a lot mm-hmm. of it is just sort of like the incidental stuff that's mm-hmm. moving a scene along and it doesn't, actually doesn't stand alone very well. Yeah, I mean, like, it's fine on its yeah. own, but it doesn't really have the peaks and crescendos you typically want from music that you're listening to on its own. Exactly. Like, yeah. I know a lot of people do actually do that, and I've done that with plenty of movie scores in sure. the past. Uh, I have a really great compilation called uh, that... I forgot the actual title of it, but it's just like Danny Elfman highlights. Oh, it's like, it was, it was like songs from a darkened theater. Songs from a darkened theater, yeah, and, yeah. and there were two volumes of that. It's mostly just the opening themes, yeah. so that's actually the, like the best parts of the, the scores. Really memorable tracks from Nightbreed, yeah. from basically everything Danny Elfman did, and yeah. um, it's great. That one, that's a great album right there. I think well, it's, it, it's a two, right? Isn't it? Uh, vo- volume one is one disc, and volume two is two discs unto itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So but that's a really, really get, great Get set. all three of those sets, because yeah. it's all just the best of Danny Elfman. Yeah. But before he started to expand on his creative horizons and, quite frankly, become a lot less interesting as a composer. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, um, it's like, I'm going to try being Philip Glass. Wow, you did a really good Philip Glass. Where's Danny Elfman? <laughs> yeah, we only had one Danny Elfman. Yeah, we already had really a Philip good Glass. At that. Can like, we do Danny Elfman now? Daniel, I realize he wants to expand himself musically, and that's totally that's okay. Right as but an artist. But, it's yeah. just when you had such a distinctive style, we are going to miss it because it was really good. Yeah. Um, Danny Elfman was not nominated for an Oscar for many, 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 many years, and then he was finally nominated twice in the same year. For Men in Black and... Um, you can do it. Was nominated for Best Picture. Oh, uh, I forgot. Goodwill Hunting. That's right, he did Goodwill Hunting. That was back in that brief period in the late 90s where they mm. had split the uh, musical score category mm. to dramatic score and musical comedy score. Which was, was our... It? Yeah, that was, was weird. That was the 97 they did that? that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. they did it for like... Th- Three or four years, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, How weird. It was an arbit- I thought it was an arbitrary choice. I understand they wanted to expand it to give like mm-hmm. more opportunities to people, yeah. and uh, which is good in itself. But it was a weird way to do it. it it's the only time I remember like the jo- the them actually separating uh, awards by genre. Yeah, and what's yeah. what's Danny Elfman's best score? What would you say? Ooh. You can say Beetlejuice. It's fine. Uh, but, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to say Batman Returns. 
Okay. I think it, I think Batman Returns mm. is really quite beautiful. I'm going to say it's Gus Van Sant's To Die For. That's a great score. Because it's really creative. Like that's he go, a really he, great he score. He goes yeah, everywhere. That's a good one. Like musically, that, just, that score just goes everywhere. That's a really, really good pick. Um, yeah, I like that But one. again, this is way back in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and and Ants is clearly trying to evoke that Danny Elfman-ish thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the Ant soundtrack, and when I didn't want it anymore, I figured I'm not going to give this back to the dollar to yeah. the, the dollar store bin. They're just going to throw Nobody's it away. Nobody's going to buy this. It's one of the only records I've ever had that I just dropped in the trash. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just looking at this. You could have given it to a library. Nothing you is monster. Nothing is going to happen. A library doesn't want this thing. Oh, you monster! So I threw it away. <laughs> I'm actually intensely disappointed in you. I'm so sorry. It, never it's, throw it's away of, art, man. One of, one of the few CDs I've ever never, owned that I just threw away. Never throw. Art, man. Ordinarily, never. I recycle it. I give it to a store. I donate it. I give it to a friend. This one, I just put that, in the trash. That's just a dagger in my soul. So um, I'm so sorry that one CD yeah. for the score of the movie Ants yeah. is just lost now. Ants as a movie. Let's just let's just wrap this up because yeah. here's the thing with Ants. Mm. Outside of its historical context, it's quite a bad film. Uh, the jokes mostly don't land. Uh-huh. The overall look is. A, ugly, a, it's ugly, ugly and B, because it's early CG, it's just, you know, not rendered as sharply. It's just mm. not as good looking a movie. Yeah. Um, the cast is somewhat of a novelty, but building the entire kids movie around Woody Allen is, you know, it's kind of a weird just, idea. Especially considering yeah. he's basically playing himself. Like, that's a weird thing, and it's just kind of hard to watch now. Yeah, yeah. Um, even, like, ignoring that, if you can... It's an odd choice because the character is clearly written to be a young, you know, sort of maverick. Mm. You know, someone who is who doesn't who hasn't gotten used to the world the way it is. And when you make the protagonist a guy who at the time I think was in his 50s and playing it that way, mm. it's a weird choice for the character. It's a weird choice for a kids movie and nowadays it's just gross mm. to watch. Um the plot is all over the place. The political commentary varies. Not, not well thought out. Very yeah. varies from okay, this is kind of novel for a kids movie to this outwardly contradicts the theme of the previous scene. Um, it does not work. No, well, it, a Bug's Life isn't amazing either, by the way. But because it's more fable-like and because it's more it's, colorful and, and it's broad, it's like funny, and the characters yeah. are like more interesting. Like that one suffer. I feel like a Bug's Life suffers because it's like the one Pixar movie that is clearly just following a comedy blueprint. It's just mm. Three Amigos. It's the most formulaic. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 Seven Samurai, but they're doing the comedy version. So it's Three Amigos. It's Galaxy Quest, uh, but with ants, and it just follows those beats to the letter. That makes it kind of like unambitious as far as Pixar goes. It still functions perfectly well. It functions perfectly well. It's a good looking movie. It's a well acted movie. It's I it's pretty far down as far as I'm concerned on like if you were to rank all the Pixar movies, but it's way better than stuff mm-hmm. like Good Dinosaur or yeah, Cars that, Two. Yeah, that's true. You know, like there's they're way worse Pixar movies now. And, uh, of course, if, if you hate Woody Allen or you hate Kevin Spacey, you're screwed either way. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. And at least Kevin Spacey's not the protagonist. He's, he's the you're villain not, in that You're case, not expected yeah. to, like, empathize with him. And also, you aren't. he isn't basically playing himself. Yeah. So, but an excellent point to be making, mm-hmm. nonetheless. Um, so, that is it for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Weird choice. Uh, speaking of weird, 
Uh, next week, we've decided we're going to go back to Tubi TV. TubiTV.com is a free streaming service. So it turns uh, out there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. Yeah, it's actually kind of a neat service. There are commercials, but the commercials don't interrupt as often as you might think, so you can really kind of actually just watch a show or a movie pretty straight up. Um, and uh, we decided to start uh, rifling through their rather impressively large sci-fi fantasy cult section, mm. uh, which has a ton of stuff from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, 90s. And, um, <laughs> but, this, uh, but it's basically all the weird stuff that Netflix doesn't even want to cover anymore. Which means way more interesting. Way mm. more interesting. Uh, and uh, the nominees uh, included 20 Million Miles to Earth, classic Ray Harryhausen, a giant monster movie. Every, you can vote for these at our Patreon page, by the way. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Our patrons get to pick every single week what the movie is. Uh, but our nominees included 20 Million Miles to Earth, Day of the Triffids, uh, Fire and Ice, the uh, Ralph Bakshi-Frank Frazetta uh, collaboration. But the one you picked... Y'all are weird. You picked Hell Comes to Frogtown. Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper... Uh, best known from wrestling and also the star of the classic film They Live. Uh, he plays the last virile man on Earth in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. And in or- he has to rescue the last uh, women on Earth who are capable of perpetuating the human race after they have been kidnapped by frog people in the desert. Mutated giant frog men. It's weird. It's kooky. It's kinky. It's very R-rated. It's very. Uh, R- I want to warn you right now. If you, you, you don't, you know, don't just watch it with anybody. Like this is a weird cult film, okay? Hmm. But it's mega weird, and we're really going to talk about it uh, next week. <laughs> uncritically acclaimed. Uh, also next week, uncritically acclaimed. We're going to be talking about uh, new releases like Blood Machines, which is a new sci-fi cosmic opera coming to Shutter. Look up the trailer. It looks neat. I have no idea if it's going to be good, but it looks neat. And it at least looks like eye candy, so I'm very interested in checking it out. Yeah. And, of course, we will do our due diligence and we'll find whatever else is available on video on demand. If there's something in particular you want us to try to cover, we can't promise you that we'll be able to, but we would sure be happy to, to, to listen to your requests. Uh, you can uh, tweet us at Critic Acclaim. Or you can tweet us individually. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Once again, our Patreon page is patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Thank you very much to all of our patrons, without whom we would not have a podcast right now. Mm. Uh, over at critically acclaimed uh, Patreon's pa- critically acclaimed <laughs> Patreon page, you get a ton of bonus content, including podcasts dedicated to Star Trek, Firefly, the Academy Awards, uh, Disney movies that have been vanishing from the Disney vault and are not on Disney Plus. Commentary tracks, a whole bunch of cool stuff. It's all there at our Patreon page. Mm. Uh, and if you want to write to us about uh, our reviews, any of the topics we discussed on this week's show, or just anything at all, really, mm. uh, the email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your letter on an upcoming episode of our weekly podcast, We've Got Mail. Oh, that's all. That's all we got, man. I think that's it. So yeah. thank you, everybody. Piles of podcasts, and we're all happy to give it to you. Yeah, casts full of pot. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to the show. We hope you have a wonderful week. Stay safe and sane, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry. What? <laughs>